in the West Wing. <laughs> I, I, think that was, I think that was just a bit too soon for it to be uh, alive uh, as well. Then. Yeah, I'm not sure we quite caught that one, but yeah. <laughs> uh, for the benefit of those who've just tuned in and wonder what we're talking about, we're just talking about a TV program called Green Wing. Which apparently which... isn't an environmentally friendly version of the West Wing. No. No, definitely not. No. <laughs> and which Jamie and I couldn't recall. Nope. So, but hey ho. We're just uncultured, that's all it is. <laughs> I'm not sure you can call it culture. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, yogurt's a culture, isn't it? Uh, hey. Can be any sort of mix, can't it? Do you guys have a dad joke counter on the uh, on this podcast, or is it just a? It's just a general timer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We could do it. We could do this one. It's the sort of thing we could get something. Need somebody to kind of yeah listen in to if. Or, or to, I mean, oh, people that's... can download. People can download. I, I leave the the YouTube downloadable by other people, so to be able to re-check, like, reuse if they wish. So somebody could download it, watch the entire thing, kind of then have it, and then have a little counter going. <laughs> for the dad well, jokes. Just, just cut all of it so so that it's just one big, you know, like every 50 episodes or something, it's just it, like a mega mix just of dad jokes and terrible puns. <laughs> well, how long would that be after every 50 episodes if you're just collecting the dad jokes? Well, it's far too long. Or just like a full kind of Jesse episode. <laughs> well, Jesse Ventura again. Are we referring back to earlier? Or... <laughs> Those of you who weren't in the pre uh, pre podcast start chat, Jesse Ventura is a future guest on this show, uh, yeah, recounting right. his time as governor of Texas and uh, his uh, great role in the original Predator film. An ex Navy SEAL, supposedly. Was he? Supposedly. Okay. So he claims. <laughs> I, I saw a fantastic little clip, uh, uh, not clip, but like, uh, you know, where someone's posted just like a transcript of something as in the form of a joke. Um, a meme? Yeah. Well, yeah. Are we live? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ollie, we're live. Yes, we're live, Ollie. Okay. It, it was a guy who got very confused. Um, Hi. And <laughs> referred to his son as a dolphin trainer. Um, and then when his son arrived to save the day, he said, no, Dad, remember, I, I train Navy SEALs, not dolphins. <laughs> I have kind I of crippled myself. I want to look at the comments, but I can't activate the mouse because I'm right-handed. Your other hand <laughs> will still work. Yes. <laughs> No, that's not good. I've just dragged you off screen. Uh, this is fantastic for, for the audio listeners tomorrow. <laughs> oh, that's fine. I can edit this bit out. Yeah, if you're listening on the audio and you're not sure what's going on, check the video out. You really should. <laughs> It'll make a lot more sense. Now that I can actually see comments, I can possibly respond to those as well. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> Do you need to do your, your uh, usual uh, live introduction type thing, Tim? Oh, I won't do my usual one. We haven't got that long. Um, 
do, do people need to know who I am, or is is, is that pertinent to the conversation? Or no, maybe, maybe in an hour or so. But I was going to say, let's early, yeah, Jamie. We're only four minutes in. <laughs> when, have, when have we done an introduction? Four minutes in. Oh, there was one. Clearly, oh, we, yeah. clearly we don't one. actually have enough to talk about that we're already having to delve into old material. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's my old dad joke repertoire. It's just everything yeah. I've learned up to this point. So, uh, oh, yeah, made a good point. He's waiting to see Ollie do a turning demo. That would involve me actually making another YouTube video. Um, <laughs> and your point I can, is. I can, I can, I can do an intro if you like. I can do an intro. I could do an abbreviated intro. So um, I'm Dan, uh, mostly known within the maker community as Dandles. Uh, I am a woodworker, predominantly wood turning. I currently have a puppet on my arm whose name is Ollie, who was made by the lovely maker Lucas. Um, and I kidnapped him during Maker Central and wandered around Maker Central quite a lot with him on my arm. And uh, Lucas and I came to an agreement subsequently afterwards uh, of an exchange of um, handcrafted goods in uh, in exchange for Ollie. So he now resides with me. Are you happy about that? Ooh. Okay, that's good. Uh, <laughs> I, I still need to make him a proper home. Uh, that, that will be a future video because uh, we haven't decided if you have windows yet, have we? No, okay. Uh, he's shaking his head for the audio listeners. So <laughs> I, think he, um, I think he needs windows. I mean, we, we well, have to have a poll on the Maker's Waffle Instagram. But yeah, we don't only need to be well, yeah, we, we could have a we could have a discussion about that. Um, and Ollie will say hello to a lot of people later on. Um, thank you very much. Um, so yeah, but my my day job uh, is I work at a shop that sells woodworking tools, equipment, machinery, and timber. And so that name of that shop is called the Andals which is where my nickname Dandles came from, thanks to uh, the lovely Alex that is the half shilling, um, <laughs> otherwise known as Al's Hack Shack. So, um, shack Shack. Yeah. Shack Shack, indeed. Uh, but yeah, that's basically it. I, uh, I'm predominantly a woodworker, woodturner, and um, as another sideline, because I need more, many more things, I also uh, have a side business which is focused around uh, producing handmade wooden kitchen and tableware. So, um, yeah, all kinds of different angles and perspectives to talk about there if we choose to. Or we could, yes, again, just talk about how soft uh, Dr. Multi's t shirts are. Yes, that's so good. Yeah. And, you know, not hinting or anything, but Ollie's a little bit cold, James. Just to say. <laughs> Does he does he need it in a uh, giant extra large? Is that the um, is that the hint there, Dan? I don't I don't think anyone who can see Ollie would suggest that he's a human gents extra large. I yeah, think a child's extra small might drown him a little bit. No, I was thinking more a just child's medium. I think child's medium. Child's medium. <laughs> uh, child's medium. Funnily enough, uh, was my stage name. No, was actually the name <laughs> of the uh, about the size that is required for. <laughs> Most puppets of this size, according to uh, to make us Luke, make a Lucas. I know, Duncan. We're doing intros at the start. I was a bit thrown by it as well. I was expecting no. I mean, I literally meant and, your yeah. your normal like Instagram twiddly peep thing. That was that was what I meant. But oh, was, the twiddly peep. You... So yeah. Um, oh, James was, has I thought you were just... James has already responded. Look. <laughs> 
Yeah, he's joining in from work and he's going to see if he can find one for Ollie. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, what was I responding to there? I just went, I'm just wondering if the, the, it'll end up looking like Ulton Ma because it'll be so small that the kind of the, the, the Ma and Ulton the Mar, K yeah. will be kind of under the armpits. Well, the, the bigger question is really is when, when am I going to create some Ollie related merch? And the answer to that is actually after our, our good friend, um, the Maker Monster finally gets his act together and prints some T-shirts that all of us are eagerly mm. waiting for, or a plushy Bandosaurus. Either of these things would be gratefully received and very much we, we would like to exchange cash, coupons, or just love for whatever it is he, he wants to take. Uh, yeah, and that's I think, an enormous I think we just need the full, the, the full range uh, of, yeah. of his tools on the shelf. All the tools behind. plushies, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Ollie's going to have to take a break for a little bit. Um, mostly because my arm is getting rather tired. <laughs> As I am well, he is, he's, 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 quite, he's quite heavy, obviously. Yeah. No, he ain't heavy. <laughs> God, <on>, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> he ain't heavy. He's my puppet. <laughs> anyway. Good night, Ollie. For the moment. I was trying to be good then. But... Sorry? <laughs> I was trying to be good then, but I think... <laughs> What's the point of this podcast if you're going to be good? Well, no, just to give Andy a chance for once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm slow on the jokes. I'm slow on the jokes. Okay, I, I, find, I, find, to... I find sometimes, yeah, for me, sometimes either a joke, it'll, it'll snap in really quickly. Or it'll kind of appear yeah, two minutes to 30 minutes after it's not going to be funny anymore. Yeah. That tends to be the kind of the more common situation for me. Well, as long as it doesn't kick in, you know, like a month or so later and you say it out loud in the car and your other half looks and go, what, what are you talking about? And then you, you have to just, oh, no, no, never mind. <laughs> even even <laughs> after a few hours, it, it can have that effect. The problem uh, then is trying to explain what the joke originally was while still laughing. Yes, and driving. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, it's easily it's easily done. But, yeah, not getting something funny immediately. Yeah, I, I guess I mean, that comedians have. I, I was I was devastated when I found out that most comedians kind of yeah don't make the jokes up on the spot. Yeah, and um, aren't kind of yeah, and have jokes written for them. I think I think um, I think there's quite a few different types that are similar to makers, isn't it? I I've, mm. I've, I've do quite a lot of um, it's not it's not it's too strong a word to call it research. I watch an awful lot of both um, <laughs> podcasts and stand up podcasts from stand up comedians where they talk a lot about mm. their craft because oh, um, yeah. I find I find it fascinating. And there's an awful lot of there's the different there's the ones who will have jokes written for them and they're just very good at getting into the rhythm and they tend to be people who are also exceptionally busy with other things um but i think comedy is is very much like many other skills it's a muscle and if you mm. don't exercise that muscle then it, it's never going to work well um so when they they go out and they do smaller clubs and they try out material even if they're a really well-known comedian it, it can 
fail miserably because it's the first time they're trying it or you know second time kind of thing but then they refine it and they refine it and they refine it and it, it's only after it gets to a certain stage and they know it's working that that'll get included in in sort of an act that goes to a bigger stage but as part of doing more of that you're then getting heckled from the crowd and you've got to you know you've got to learn to interact and read people and, and know how far you yeah. can push things and is the crowd with you or not and all that kind of stuff so i think there's there's a huge amount of um mental agility required to do that kind of thing um absolutely yeah 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 and i mean you know some people are just naturally good at being off the cuff and you would think oh they make a brilliant comedian but then you try and put them on a stage and even a small stage at like a talent show or something and they just crumble and fail because that their zone is that circle of friends where they know all the in jokes and they've got the timing down with that group of people. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, you look at like old, old Billy Connolly stuff, you know, where he's, yeah. uh, he's either very reactive to a situation and, yeah. uh, you know, or he's telling a story and then reacting yeah. to feedback. Well, when um, I, I can remember my favorite one with Billy is uh, when mobile phones were just starting to come a common thing and he hears one goes off in the audience and he just stops and just goes, oh, is that for me? <laughs> you know, and then sort of like dope starts going off on a rant about how mobile phones are now the new bane of our society and blah, 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 blah. And, and it's not, you know, because he'd been doing it for so long, it's funny because everyone knows that he he totally means everything he's saying, but he's able to give it that that little angle, that little twist that um, isn't quite the same as, as someone just having a rant, like myself, who is a little bit known for picking a topic and going on for too long like this moment now in fact well no I was, I was just about to sort of do a steve and segue on to ross noble as a comedian for that sort of thing um because he's you know he's sort of quite well known for his big meandering rants and rambles that go off into you know off into the rhubarb and stuff um but he's a, a perfect example of that kind of uh you know purely reactionary from you know, what's going on in the audience or mm. things like that. There's, there's a particular one that um, two of the guys in like front row or, or a couple of rows back hadn't turned up at the start. And um, <laughs> I think it, was, it might have been in Manchester. And uh, there was just 10 minutes or so at the start of the set where he just went off on a mad ramble about tropical things and stuff like that. And then the two guys turned up. And it was just this whole backstory that had happened about these two guys before they'd even turned up and then became like part of the rest of the show. Mm. It's, you know, that kind of reactionary comedy is fantastic, but yeah, like you said, it's such a niche thing for someone to be able to do that rather than we saw like um, in, in our, in our local venue, we uh, years ago now we saw Omar Jalili and, yes. um, his his opening act was Boothby Gruffo, who not many people will have heard of. Um, I, but, I saw Boothby yeah. when I went to see Ahmed. Yeah, absolutely. I think he did the whole of the UK with him. And he was brilliant because he, this, this was clearly something, something that happens every single time. But so he started the act and he, and he did this whole thing. And he, and he said, I tried to go around your local town and find some interesting things to talk about, but there wasn't any. So I bought your local newspaper and we're going to have to pick things out of that. And he, and he did this whole thing and he was 15 minutes in and then people turned up late. 
And so he said, oh, I'm sorry, you've missed the first 15 minutes of the show. Come on, sit down, sit down. And then started again. And it was exactly the same right from the beginning all the way through. And then he, he very quickly realized that they weren't engaged. They were still through. He said, oh, guys, they're not buying into it. I'll just carry on from where I left off. And then just jumped. And it was, he clearly had done it so many times and was just so used to it that it, it just felt natural and it flowed. And, and it was great. It was, it was really funny. Um, and then he did a song that I still can remember the uh, the chorus to and everything, which I won't sing. Um, <laughs> uh, but it all talks about um, Hartlepool, which is where they hung a little monkey back in 1810. So well worth looking that one up. Um, but he also, <laughs> he, for, on a separate occasion, which I saw on YouTube, he had a, an, a member of, when he, I think he was touring America, and there was a member of a bar audience who just clearly didn't like him or his songs. And he said, um, well, for, for the member of the audience who, who isn't enjoying the show so far, we're going to lighten it up a little bit, and this next song's for you. And he sort of plays the guitar a little bit, and he says, uh, this one's called Kittens in a Bag, and then just starts playing this melodic harmony <laughs> and doesn't, doesn't sing anything at all. But just, you know, it was just that perfect moment of, you know, kind of projecting his attitude towards the guy without being aggressive. Um, mm which I thought was a very, very British way of doing it. Yeah, definitely. He, he's, I, that was the first time I'd seen him was when I went to see Omid as well. And yeah, um, and yeah a, a really, really interesting sort of like really relaxed comedy yeah. set. Yeah, like you say, you can, you can clearly tell that they've worked together for a lot, you know, a long time. Yes. Yeah. It is good, well worth checking out. We, we're going to see Dave Gorman uh, in a couple of weeks, actually. Um, yeah. Talking about that whole kind He's of thing. He's spirit of, animal, isn't he, Jamie? He is, yeah. I've, I've mentioned Dave Gorman <laughs> once or twice on the podcast before. But um, the on his newsletter and stuff, and he, he's partway through the tour at the minute, and he's he given feedback on, on his newsletter basically saying exactly what you're talking about before of um that in in doing the shows uh there were sections that he's tailored um from kind of gauging the audience responses and things he said he cut a big chunk out that just didn't quite fit but in cutting it a a big laugh out he's made the other laughs surrounding it a little bit bigger and kind of filled the gap but it's a, it's an interesting way of it's um it, it's a. I I think uh, stand-up comedians and the maker community actually, in 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 quite a few ways, have almost parallel kind of processes. Mm. Um, in the sense that a lot of us, and I can't say for everyone, but a lot of us suffer with imposter syndrome. Uh, a lot of us agonise whether or not people are going to like our finished product. And we'll, you know, spend a lot of time going through different iterations that we, we are painful to us until we get to that product that we're happy to put out, uh, whether or not that's an individual piece, something we're going to sell, piece of social media or whatever the case may be. Um, and, I, you know, and I'm sure there's parallels to other other groups as well. Um, but also yeah, teachers, teachers and com stand comedy. Uh, we're not going yeah. to talk about teaching, Andy. We're not going to talk about teaching and the, fail the failed British education system. I'm just going to stop you there because I've heard your rant on this, and, I, and you know I've got a rant on this. We'll, we'll shelve that one for the moment because uh, 
any of our friends who have listened to this have probably heard my point. On I was, that I was thinking more along the lines of the kids going, "You're having a laugh, aren't you?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's you know, there's there's an awful lot I think of um, to stand in front of a stage full of uh, stand on a stage in front of a group of people. I've done it quite a lot. I've done a lot of public speaking in my time. I don't have the fear unless I'm not sure the content isn't going to land. Mm. So. I will uh, write a full script out of something that I'm going to talk about and I'll stand up there and I'll have it on a lectern in front of me and then I won't read any of it. It's there in case my brain starts to fail me or in case something's not happening. But to stand up in front of a group of people with just a microphone and to hope, to hope that the audience is going gonna, is gonna to sort of join you in, in the journey and that you can, you can push boundaries and, it, and you, you're going to be able to get that all to work. That's a whole other level of, of um, courage is, you know, mm. that's, it's something that I would aspire to do. And, you know, you know, you've got your list of these are things I'd like to do in my life. And then there's the, the yeah. list of things I'd like to do in my life. If I, if, you know, if, if fantasy could be, become a reality and if I knew I was actually going to put the effort in kind of list <laughs> and, uh, and that on that list is, is definitely, I, I would like to give stand up comedy a go. Um, but, the, but the reality of that is that, you know, any stand-up comedian will tell you it takes a good, like, three, four, five years of just failing. Mm. I think same with making. You know, you, you don't know where you, you – know, you don't know what works for you. You don't know what your, your structure system is, you know, or, or whatever the case may be. You know, I, I tried making guitars full-time for a living, and it wasn't me. I learned a hell of a lot. But I, I mostly learned that making guitars full time wasn't for me. I wasn't passionate enough about it. I loved the woodworking and the assembly and the, the look on someone's face when it was finished. But I didn't care whether you wanted a Stratocaster or a Telecaster style body shape. I wasn't passionate enough to say, oh, no, but you play this style of music. You should have this kind of guitar. I don't care. Is it going to be pretty? Is it going to work? That's what I was bothered by. So it's, it's all lumps of wood with strings. Does it really matter what shape it is? <laughs> I don't know which end to blow into anyway. Does the shape actually affect how it sounds? Are you talking acoustic or electric? <laughs> well, okay, I mean, acoustic is going to, isn't it? I mean, it has to because yeah. the so sound, acu acoustic, acoustic the shape has a sound as well. Will, will affect yeah. the sound uh, yeah. as will the, the, the gauge of strings you use. On an electric yeah. guitar, no. And on an electric guitar, what makes a difference to the sound is the gauge of strings and the type of pickup you've got in it and the yeah. arsehole on the other end of the plectrum. That's that's the only three things that will affect the sound. And well, how it, bad it so will be. In, in that way, there is there is a sort of a psychological element to the shape of the guitar changing the sound yes. of the music. Yeah. But only in the sense that, depending on what shape the guitar you've got, sort of dictates how you're going to play it. Yeah, I mean, we uh, give me a second. I can give you a prime example of this. <laughs> Since I'm in my workshop, and this is going to is be... Is it an Amazon Prime example? <laughs> I'm sure the audio was great as I walked away then, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was all right. So, so when, when I say I got into guitar making, I did a one-day how to build a cigar box guitar workshop. And this, this was the instrument that I made, which is completely covered in sawdust. It's a pine box with a hardboard top and bottom and a pine neck on it and a piece of paper with glue with, with the frets like drawn on it. And um, uh, it's got a 
bolt at the bottom, but you can actually plug it in. Where are my cameras are reverse? Can actually plug it in. And this hasn't been tuned in years and it's sat next to the fire. So this is going to sound awful. There you go. For that. Straight back to the 17th century. Absolutely. But yeah. this, this is just pine. And that, that is a, a noise box that is emitting a noise from vibrations of strings. And, you know, it's, it's not handcrafted out of the finest mahogany and rosewood that is laminated together. So it's, it's pine, not a tone wood, then? Is that what you're pine is not a tone wood, no. Yeah, pine okay. is not one of the tone woods. <laughs> but then you go from that, and I, you've got this horrific thing that I could club people to death with very easily that I made out of a couple of license plates and a load of Iroko. And, I mean, the neck on it is, is thick enough to give Thor a bit of a question as to whether or not it's, it's going to be worth him picking up. I mean, this will also sound <laughs> awful. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm but really that sounds out of tune. Yeah, well, they're both out of tune. <laughs> they're all horrific. Um, but why do I keep them when, laughingly, I can't even play? Um, it's because it's things that I've made, and they'll sit there in the corner, and I'll look at them, and I'll remind stuff. Perfect for the next podcast you go on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's why I came out into the workshop, and not at all because my wife will want to go to bed early and will want me to shut up. <laughs> or she might just start sewing. Or she, yeah, she might just start the sewing machine yeah. up right next to where the computer normally is. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I bit the, the perfect the perfect test to see actually whether or not um the, the, the shape of a guitar or anything makes a difference is is Fender actually made a guitar. They took one of their necks and they stuck it to a concrete block and put a pickup on it. And, and strung it, and it sounded like a Fender guitar. Yeah. So, they, they, you know, the resonance is is not really anything. Um, but equally... Is, as long as it doesn't flop around, that's the main thing. For yeah, but, but equally, the, the counter-argument to that is if you if you buy any guitar that's acoustic, any decent guitar player and musician will tell you that a guitar changes its tone over time. And it, and it will. It, it is this inexplicable. Thing. I mean, purely wooden instrument. It's fairly easy to tell you sort of over time. You know, things have moved and shifted and whatever. But they will develop a richer or or a different individual tone. Um, that's why the um, this is getting very technical now. Not really. This is why the Gibson Les Paul guitar, as played by Billy Gibbons in the ZZ Top, that has a distinctive sound compared to any other guitar of that shape and size that was made in the same batch from the same factory, it sounds different. But then it's been played by a guy playing rock blues for the best parts of 30, 40, 50 years in a very distinctive yeah. way. And it's mm -hmm. going to sound more like that than it will anything else. So yeah, that, that's the thing is it's it erodes away it, over time as well, isn't it? That's yeah. the other thing, you know, it, yeah. Being the violins are Stradivari, yeah, yeah, they yeah. yeah have particular sounds based on kind of partially their age as well as obviously the skill he had as a as a violin. Well, Dave, Dave Bowers just made a great point in the um in the thing as well is is how it feels to play it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that yeah. that will make a big difference. Like if um it was something that um <laughs> my my first prideful comment of the evening um something that I got to be 
relatively good at when I was building them was making the neck the right shape and the right level of smoothness that you, you wouldn't slip out of your hands, but you could quickly move your hands up and down the fingerboard. Mm. And it felt right and it sat right in your hand. And for me, that was so much more important than anything on sort of the body shape because, you know, that's hung on the strap. And this, this is the hand that's doing half the work. And this is the hand that's doing the other half of the work. If these two feel comfortable, that's, you know, most of the job done. So, yeah, but as I said, and, you know, there's guys in the comments who have, who can actually play and have been doing so for a lot longer than I've owned a guitar and mm. sat there looking at it going, I should learn to play that one day. Um, you'll be able to talk about this much, much greater detail than I will have. So I'm guessing unfinished pallet wood for a neck is probably not a good idea then. Are you trying to wind me up, Andy? <laughs> I'm trying to get the dad joke count up. Oh, you're trying to get the dad joke count up. Sorry, I thought we were going to go into a pallet wood versus real wood conversation. I mean, is, is that not just a coffee table in Potentia? What, a river coffee table in Potentia? <laughs> oh, God. It's gonna, some, someone must have done a, a, river, a river table guitar. Yeah, crimson guitars. Yeah, well, there you go then. <laughs> Yeah, they, they did it with bog oak, gold leaf, and um, epoxy resin. But they didn't, it, it was clear epoxy as opposed to, you know, actually a river table guitar. Mm. Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of that kind of stuff has been done. It, do you know what? The, the whole river table thing is a, a trend that fascinates me because it won't bloody die. Like, <laughs> it, it just... One of the benefits of working in, in the, the woodworking retail environment is that you get to see these little trends that crop up. And, you know, because of the community we're in, uh, favorite C word, Steve, um, uh -huh. we, we get to see these kind of little things that start to creep in early before they get to Etsy. And then they, you know, uh -huh. people take them on and try and make money out of them. And integrity. Um, <laughs> Yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Um, funny enough, I never had anyone coming in and asking for tensegrity fittings. I was disappointed. I was like, I had prepared answers. Um, it's the second word off. <laughs> no, not at all. No, 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 no. You, you forget, Jamie. My job, my job. We don't sell anything that anyone needs <laughs> at all. No one needs anything in the shop that I sell for survival. We don't sell food. We don't sell shelter. We don't sell clothing. Nothing we sell firewood. Uh, we sell. We do sell firewood, but you don't need that for the majority of people. You could build shelter out of some of the wood we've got, but ironically, we sell a very few amount of screws, and we don't sell any nails at all. So actually, joining it together, we're going to have to sell you glue and a Japanese saw to do some proper joinery for it. You know. Um, so if someone comes into me asking for a specific thing, if there is anything at all in the shop that is remotely close to what they're after, then it is, it's, you know, it's kind of my job to, to take them to it and say, hey, look, will this work? I will never, and I've got to go on record here, and I've said this many times in the shop elsewhere, I will never sell someone something that I don't fully believe they need. We don't work on commission. We don't, you know, there is no benefit to us to try and sell someone something to get a sale um we i only ever recommend stuff if if i you know part of the thing that i do is always say what you know what are you looking for why why are you wanting to buy a table so is this your first woodworking tool you know what what size workshop have you got what's the plan um and quite often using the table saw as an example people will say to me oh well i've been watching a lot of youtube videos and i want to get into woodwork 
And I know instantly what they've been doing is watching a lot of American woodworking videos and they haven't got the room to do what they want to do, what they've seen on an American woodworking video. Yeah, so my first my, thing is I need a big cabinet saw with a... Yeah, with a, a I need a saw stop and I need, <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I, I will have, you know, I will have the conversation and say, hey, look, you know, if, if you if you want to cut up sheet material, if you're wanting to make a lot of boxes, if, you know, all, all of the kind of stuff that table saw is great for, fine, I can do that. Or we can sell you a track saw because you've got an eight by six workshop and you can have two trestle tables and a track saw so you can process your material outside and then you can take it into your workshop for assembly. Or failing that, actually, you're, you've just told me that half of what you want to do is cut curves. Well, don't make an Izzy Swan jig, just buy a bandsaw. Or a jigsaw. But, or a jigsaw. Every, everyone's got you know different requirements and, and different things so yeah i'm hoping somebody's going to listen to this though and then next time they they go into your shop ask for some tensegrity fittings and video <laughs> how many people in the comments are still looking that up to go what was tensegrity again that was a very quick one that passed us by i don't even remember <laughs> But no, but going back to that original point that, you know, Tensegrity, yeah, been and gone and it will resurface again. And so anyone who wants a video that's going to do well in, you know, four or five, maybe 10 years time, maybe make a Tensegrity one now and just sort of release it, but don't shout about it. And it will, it will gather um, traction dust. later on. <laughs> yeah, dust. <laughs> um, but no, the, the whole river table thing, it just, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. And then people tweak it a little bit and go, and it's, oh, it's now going to be a, a sea foam kind of effect on there instead, or I'm going to make a little diorama in the middle of a table, or you know, all of that kind of stuff, which which is fine. I you know, I think Neil's just hit hit the nose on the head in the chat. Yeah, the River Ten yeah. Segrity table with Damascus fittings, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, with a built-in fidget spinner. You need a built-in fidget spinner. <laughs> yeah, again, the you can make the whole the, the whole top could be the fidget spinner, like a big giant laser. <laughs> You know, as long as it goes to a, you know, as long as it goes to a family home with kids and, and dogs, so that you can really get the the count up when it's spun round, that would be fine. Yeah. Really lose lose some teeth over it. Yeah. And just looking back through the the chat, um, Dave Bauer, Dave Bauer Art Apologies. We're, we're skipping over a lot of very good points you're making there. Someone has made a river palette. Uh, there are people I know. We we a lot of us will have seen the meme of people turning like coffee tables into a pallet into pallets, yeah, yeah. and the other way around and all that kind of stuff um raz no one's challenged you to do anything uh, oh by the way raz while you're here uh, a friend of mine earlier was talking about some exceptionally good swedish whiskey and i was wondering if you could get me some um tensegrity table restoration videos now we're talking dave that that was got to be uh it's got to be something that we can all sort of start prepping let's, for let's yeah make some tensegrity tables rough them up a little bit and then make the videos now for restoring we'd them. have rusty chains wouldn't you so you still Let's get to rusty use chains yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't that your your uh, your paint. weekend then rusty chains yeah that's that's the that's the name of my scar punk band <laughs> Yes, Rasmus, whiskey, whiskey from whiskey from Sweden. You must have heard of it. Although I'm not sure it's got the E in it. Mm, it's a bit more scotch then. Entirely possible. Um, 
So what's what's the next what's the next thing coming up along then? If yeah, you know, if you're getting the kind of the heads well, up on we, the new things, what's the well new we thing? well no I think I think certainly from the uh, the epoxy point of view, it's the whole it's the it's the beach coastline sea foamy kind of mm. thing is is the latest one that's certainly floating around on on Etsy and all of those kind of stuff. And anyone who goes to a craft fair these days will find someone who's done a lot of it on clocks and, and anything wooden that they can put a bit of epoxy on the other end and blow the foam on the other end which and it does look quite nice don't get me wrong it, it you know it's um it is something that works but i just uh, if I, done I, well yes if done well mm. same as anything though andy isn't it yeah you true know? um and it's <laughs> It's something that I shy away from at work. I, I do, um, I get asked an awful lot of advice at work from colleagues and, and customers. And anytime anyone asks me anything about epoxy, I have to default to other people because it doesn't interest me. I struggle with epoxy glue. Okay. It's messy. It winds me up. It's like, if you get, you know, and I'll tape stuff off and I'll wear gloves and I'll tape off all kinds of areas. And I, I don't necessarily get it where I don't want it, but it just, it feels a lot more messy and problematic than using something like an alifactic glue, such as tight bond or any of the other PVA based glues. Um, but gluing metal to wood isn't very easily done with those kind of those kind of glues. Yeah. And you can use expanding glue and I'm not going to go on a glue conversation now because, you know, this isn't <laughs> this isn't a woodworking pond podcast. We've still got to talk about the weather, food and our favorite movies. Maybe, yeah. um, <laughs> but it's. I, I don't get on well with it, but I don't have the interest in learning about it more. So mm -hmm. I've, I've got a, a piece over there, which is going to look like a lovely um, centerpiece in a table. It's a piece of elm. Um, and I literally, there's, there's one hole about inch and a half in diameter and maybe half an inch deep. And I need to fill it with some clear epoxy just so that it's filled. Because if people are going to put food on it, you don't want a hole that stuff's mm -hmm. going to gather in. And it sat there for four months waiting for me to work out how I'm going to do that because I, I have zero interest. And what's actually going to happen is I'll probably take it to the bloke who lives about five doors down from where I work, who plays with epoxy all day long. And I'll say, can you just, when you've got some like overspill that's clear, could you just pour some in there for me, please? And he'll, you know, he'll happily do that and I'll pay him to do that. But it's just, I'm not interested. I don't like, you know, mixing plastic with wood. It's not my thing <laughs> and it's, it's going to date things as well isn't it like you're going to walk into a kitchen in 20 30 years time and find someone with an, an epoxy river countertop with backlit with leds and it's just you're just going to look at it and you're going to like, yeah and and then you're going to be Ask like the LEDs oh, aren't now, I've, now i've got to get rid of this and mm. it doesn't deteriorate properly so what what do you, can't you do dispose of it you've got to you yeah. can't burn it you can't yeah I mean, not that you can burn chipboard countertops. No. That's an interesting question, Neil. How many of the products at work do you get to try out? Do you only try what interests you, or do you have time to try just try stuff? Um, yeah. Uh, how, how likely is it that my bosses are going to listen to this at some point? Um, the, the honest answer is that most of what we've got at work is stuff that I either already own. <laughs> um, no, no I, I, I have purchased. But there is very little in this workshop that I haven't either paid for or been given by someone who was not working 
for a, a brand. Um, one of the downsides of my job is that it's actually um, potentially conflict of interest if anyone from any brand gave me a product for free, whether or yeah. not that was to be reviewed on a, a YouTube channel or not. Um, so unfortunately, uh, even though I'm in that prime position and I get on really well with a load of the reps from like Record Power or Charmwood, Merca or any of those companies, I cannot accept things that could be, and they, they've been offered, uh, but I can't accept them because it's conflict of interest with my contract, uh, which is a great shame. Um, but I mean, it, it depends what we're talking about, Neil, really. I mean, I, I use the bandsaws quite a lot of work. Uh, I demonstrate the sharpening systems because I'm subject matter expert in there because it's a little bit nerdy and I like it. Um, we're, we're an odd shop because we we will, you know, if someone says, oh, can you just like sand a bit of, the, like we, we write all of the prices on our timber in a black marker pen, which winds mm. up a lot of amateur woodworkers because like, oh, it's really difficult to get the black marker pen off. Well, buy a thicknesser. You know, and we sell them over there. Yeah, or learn to sand better. You know, it, it's you know, it takes a bit of time, but it's. Have you ever tried sticking a sticky label onto top of sawdust and onto a rough sawed piece of timber? Shockingly, it doesn't stay on very well. So it's it's the easiest thing we've got for for keeping the prices on there. Um, but you know, we'll, yeah. Go on, Andy. I was just going to say, we've not thought just using a, a drawing pin. Yes, we have. Um, unfortunately, thieves also are happy to uh, amend things. <laughs> uh, yes, it's it's an unfortunate reaction to the world that we live in that we do have to try and do it so that they can't be adjusted. The router templates and just route the numbers in and then spray paint them and then we could, but then we'd, we'd <laughs> chuck another fifteen quid on top of the price. <laughs> um, yeah, so old-fashioned marker pen. Um, badly written by our managing director uh, who works everything out to the cubic foot and doesn't round up to 99 which drives me nuts um so we do sell boards at 34 pounds 26 and all of that kind of stuff oh. but hey you know to the nearest 50p would be good enough yeah you know it's it's fine it's it's the way they've done it for many years the the business has existed since 1860 um and it has changed a lot in the six years that I've been there, but um, there are some things that are not likely to change anytime soon. So, yeah, but getting to play with stuff, I do, I do get to sort of demo some of the power tools and things, but we don't sell. We, we're a bit weird in that we, we've tried selling things like Makita and, and Bosch power tools and they don't sell for us. There's enough businesses local to us where the builders go to buy their things that trying to sell a drill driver or anything in that range doesn't work. Um, we just we just can't be competitive. A little known fact from uh, an awful lot of those kind of companies, any of the any of the big power tool companies, um, most shops selling them are either working on sub five percent margin, or they are solely relying on the what well, I can't remember what the official term is. But if you sell a certain amount of volume per year the brand will pay you a fee. Oh, so if, if you sell, say, 200 drills in two months, then you will get X amount of money back as a, as a reward from the company for selling that amount of stock. So mm. you will get companies who I won't name, but they will literally just say, right, this is our cost price. 
we're going to put 5% on for our card fees, and then that's the price we sell it at. So how does an independent company compete with that? And you can't because yeah, you, you need to make some money. Um, so an awful lot of that kind of stuff we don't sell. I was, I was looking the other day because I, I have a um, last year I bought myself a new Bosch drill driver. Yeah. So I've got a couple of yeah, you know, couple of batteries. Now, what I don't have, I, I don't have any other battery tools apart from drill drivers. Yeah. Yeah, I've got two. I've got still got my old one. Yeah, because having a second one can be useful. And I was looking the other day, thinking. It would actually be quite useful maybe to get a saw of some sort. So either a, a, a circular saw. I've got a track saw, so not a track saw, yeah. but just a, a circular saw or maybe a reciprocating saw that I can basically lump in the back of the car. And if I need, if I want to go and pick up some pallets, because my car is a bit tricky to get pallets in, I can... Then don't, then don't pick up pallets, out. Andy. Buy some real wood. This is a very well, simple answer. <laughs> Yeah, but I, real wood I isn't free at the side of the road. I don't really <laughs> want to build a log store in my back garden out of yeah, sycamore and oak from No, you local... wouldn't. You would you would build it out of sapili or, or teak because they yeah. are weather resistant materials that will last a lot longer than the softwood alternative. <laughs> yes, but yeah, there's that other I, thing I, that pallet wood is, I, I wood is free. My back garden made out of western yeah. cedar. So you know, it's yeah. It's the pallet with the time cost rather than a material. Cost, yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes, and there's a there's a there's a local fencing company that frequently dumps three to ten pallets out a week uh, in yeah. with a sign saying "free pallets, free Which to take." It's hilarious because um, we all know Richard Martin, who works for a company that all they do is buy and sell pallets. Yeah. And there is a great market for second-hand yeah. pallets, and yet you can go around industrial estates and people are just, oh, no, just take them, just get rid of them. We don't want them because yeah. they, they can't be bothered to put the time in to, to do it. So, you know, it, there is genuinely a business opportunity there for someone who's got the time and, and has got mm. the big enough vehicle to go around just collecting pallets up and selling yeah. them off. And whether or not it's, hey, these are Euro pallets so I can sell them to a company here or, or if they're, you know, other-sized if they want to be generous and gift them away to people who want to make stuff out of pallets or, you know, sell them at a pound each or something, you know? Yeah. But anyway, anyway, so I was looking at, I was looking at source. I came across a couple of companies, not ones that I'd particularly heard of before. Um, you know, so possibly like, you know, family owned type, small, you know, one or two store type places, uh, selling bare bones or battery free, Bosch circular saw for yeah. less than half of the normal retail price compared to yeah. everyone else. So, I mean, is that kind of possibly because of, I mean, it could be that I, things that were going through my mind were this is maybe an end of line. So they're trying to get rid of that one. And there's a new model about to come out or is it kind of, I had, didn't think that maybe it was kind of along that lines of, yeah, if they sell that, sell enough, then they get that little it's... kickback from, there's, there's it's possibly one of three things. One is that they bought that stock a lot longer ago than other companies did who have sold out faster. And they were never able to keep with them, compete with them at that time. But they've had it in stock for, let's say, over a year. So therefore, their cost price is lower than the, the, the new cost price. 
so they're able to offer it at a cheaper price which there are there are some small independent shops that will play that long game they know they're not going to get that turnover back now but they will be able to beat the big boy prices later on because you know it's it's cheaper um but the bulk of the price is in the battery that is the bulk of the value like it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the draper end of the scale or if you're looking at milwaukee or or any power tool there if you buy a bare unit it will be almost you know it's at least a third cheaper if not half yeah. the price but you've then got to make sure that your battery that you've already got fits and they've not tweaked it slightly so it's a different container and carrier yeah i mean that's, that's, that's one of the looking at was the same that. yeah sorry no, i was gonna say that's one of the benefits of the um you know one of the name brands like something like um bosch or milwaukee or one of those versus you know your, your um supermarket brands who are more yeah. likely to revise the batteries every 12 months so that as your warranty expires and you pick up the latest iteration of the tool the following year it doesn't fit the previous batteries and stuff the, the funny thing about the supermarket ones if we talk about um what's the name of the brand that is it Lidl or aldi do uh ferrex aldi Ferrix. and parkside at little parkside that's the one parkside um the company that make parkside also make an exceptionally high-end power tool range mm -hmm. under a completely different brand name to the extent that they've got a uh and it's it's mafel so if anyone's ever heard of mafel m-a-f-e-l-l there's no you know it's no big secret or anything but this is something i only learned a few weeks ago but they sell like a, a, a you know a handheld surface planer that's wide enough to do uh, eight or nine possibly even wider pieces of timber so a lot of the guys in the green oak timber framing business will use it because they've got six inch square posts and they need to mm. sort of flatten off one side that planer is 800 pounds but that's the same company who makes the parkside stuff so you know it, it's the same as a lot of people that go right okay so we know there's a market for this but we also know there's a market for this we'll stack it high and sell it cheap here and we'll get a great load of turnover which will fund us being able to sell six of these machines in eight months yeah it's always interesting when you sort of you start looking in the background well i find it interesting anyway i have no idea how many people have left the comments or already switched off the podcast by this point oh um, we, we've nerded out it's a few before. more fart jokes or something just to kind of get back <laughs> into the general vibe of the but yeah it's weird just even over the time like over the last sort of 10 12 years of you know the 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 rise of stuff like the little and aldi tools and stuff yeah um you know i, I, I tell know... you they, they they saw an, a gap and they they went full bore into it and it worked really mm. well i mean i i got a palm trimmer router my boss sent me a link um four years ago and i got a palm trimmer router that was nothing wrong with it at all absolutely fine delivered to my door for 15 pounds yeah i never used it I gave it away to someone else because I didn't really need it, but I just I just wanted to buy it just to look at it and go like, am I actually going to get this for 15 quid? What's the quality like? And you could have put it up next door to a Draper or any of the other sort of cheaper end of the range palm trimmer routers, and it would have been absolutely fine. Yeah. Now, you know that that's a loss leader. You know it's a loss yeah. leader. But of if someone so. buys a tool like that and they trust it and they go, actually, you know, for the quality, it's not bad. And then they see that, um, you know, a drill or a circular saw or something else is coming out and it's 30 quid or 40 quid. Mm -hmm. They already know the brand. They can they can buy into it and they, they're going to play. 
Yeah. I'll cut you off again, Jamie. From my experience, right. they're, 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 those tools, particularly now, are actually pretty okay. Yeah, it all depends what you want to do with them. Yeah. If you're starting out in the world of DIY or in you know starting out kind of, yeah, I've, I've been watching some YouTube videos, now I'm going to have a go. Actually, it's, they're not a bad starting point. They're not. If, you're not. if you've not got a huge amount of cash to sort of throw at it, you know, if you've, if you've not got the, the money to kind of go, I'm going to get a complete set of Festool with MST and all the Domino and everything else. And yeah. So this is where this is, later. Would, this is a topic I'd love to talk about because um, uh, I love to talk anyway, which is why I'm on the show. Um, <laughs> and, that, and that is the phrase only a bad workman blames their tools. Mm. That I grew up hearing all the time. So um, I didn't yeah. grow up in a family of makers. My, my dad was a financial consultant. Uh, my mum didn't work for a long time because she had kids. I'm one of four children. Uh, so she was mostly depressed um, and stressed out, which is understandable. So when she did go back to work, it was like secretarial stuff and everything else. There's nothing wrong with that, but it wasn't, um, you know, the, the very little creativity kind of around us. My older brother went into carpentry, uh, which I kind of joke with him was default because his name was Joseph. So he had to become a carpenter. Um, and and you know, he went off and did that, which instantly when I went dating myself here, when I got to GCSE selection year, uh, the woodwork teacher and the metalwork teacher retired just before and they couldn't get replacements. So I never did either of those at that level. And even if I had, I wouldn't know which one I would have chosen. I, I wasn't at that time, and this is going back to the rant that I didn't want to have about education, <laughs> neither of those teachers encouraged me enough in either of them to make me go, oh, wow, this is really cool. I can make stuff with my hands and I can do this and I can do that. They taught the rope formula lessons that they had taught for the last 40 years. And mm. you, you got to the end of the project and they didn't pick out or care whether or not the, the person was actually good at what they were doing, whether they were learning it or not. I mean, I, I still, to this day, I know what a pair of soft jaws does on an engineer's vice. That's great. And I know I made a set for the class below me, but uh, I, I don't use them. <laughs> Even if I get an engineer's vice out, I don't use them. I shove a bit of leather or a bit of like something else in there because it's it's to hand, you know, like I don't it's spend DIY soft jaws. manufacturing them. Or as is the case now, if, if you're of that mindset, you can buy a cheap Chinese pair that because they're disposable. They're not, you know, showing me how to make something that is a disposable product at that point in my life wasn't of interest to me. Mm. Uh, I can reflect back on it and I can I can enjoy the, the kind of the fact of that. But the bad workman blames his tools was something that was still taught by them, which is hilarious when you consider the state of hand tools in a school workshop. OK, that have been used and abused. And there is no way in hell that the teacher has lovingly sharpened and oiled them at the end of every evening before they've been put away into their perfect place. You know, they've been chucked in a drawer. You know, that like if you're lucky, you get a hacksaw with a new blade in it. Like, mm. It's not it's not. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, I did a number of years ago, you know, again, only about three or so years ago, I have to try and factor in as we all do the, the COVID years. So was it two years ago? Was it three? I, I'm not sure. A period of time before I was on this podcast, I did a, um, a night school class on basic joinery, because although I've 
built guitars and I've, I've done this and I've done turning, there's quite a large level of woodworking that I have big gaps of knowledge. And so I wanted to improve that. And the teachers teaching that class, everyone who was on that class had paid to be there and was an adult. Okay. And I'm very pleased to say that 60% of that class were women. And I was like, this is fantastic. This, this is going to be like, you know, this is going to be brilliant. And on the very first lesson, on the very first day, we're all handed our standard piece of timber that we're going to be working with for the whole six weeks, which was a piece of cheap pine roofing batten with knots in it and a blunt tenon saw from the selection that they used to teach the 16, 17 year olds who have gone in to learn the trade of carpentry. Not surprisingly, an awful lot of people struggled with getting really nice clean lines and getting a tight joint fit. Even the guy who was demonstrating it, the teacher, he showed you his joint at the end of it. And yeah, for, for given how many years he'd been doing it, it was, it was good for the type of timber. But if you compared it to working with any hardwood, it was shit. Mm. Yeah. But he didn't explain that. And so there was this drop off over time mm where people just kept genuinely thinking that it was it, they were just not good enough. They, they were not good enough to do this class and they weren't getting it and they were failing. And because I was frustrated and, and fed up of doing this, from the third lesson onwards, I had a chat on the second lesson. I said, am I allowed to bring in any of my own tools? He said, yeah, that's not a problem. As long as you realize, you know, if they get stolen, it's not our responsibility and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, that's fine. So I started bringing in Japanese saws and sharp chisels. And instantly you've got people going, what's, what's going on? What's he using over there? And I'm, I'm cutting stuff and I'm doing stuff. And I'm using the same timber as they're using, but all of a sudden the joins are fitting. And they're, yeah. they're not brilliant. They're still not great because, you know, I've, I've not cut a half-blind dovetail before or whatever else it was. Even just lap joints, cutting lap mm. joints down the end grain on a piece of pine, you're going to struggle to get it nice and straight. But I was able to show people, hey, look, have a go with this. Oh, but it's yours. I don't want to break it. It doesn't matter. The blade's replaceable. Have yeah. a go with this saw. And Try it. You'll probably buy your own for next week. Well, yeah. And then because it's me, <laughs> they came to Yandles and they bought the, the saw from me. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't doing it for salesmanship. I, I was doing it to show people that you can blame the tools. It's not it's not that bad workman blames their tools. A bad workman doesn't know how to use their tools properly or recognize when they're the wrong tool for the job. Uh, right. I think as well, a, a fully trained workman blaming his tools when the tools have failed is entirely okay. But to call yourself a bad workman because of shit tools is the wrong attitude to take. Yes. Yeah. It's the same with, you know, people talking about getting, you know, like if you've got an, old, an older relative who's taken an interest in technology that they haven't previously done and you, you give them your old kit. It's like, no, don't don't give them your old kit because it's, you got rid of it because it's old and crap. Yeah. You know, or teaching when your kids learn to drive, you know, if you buy them the crappy old bango where the brakes don't work or do you buy them the nice fancy car with all the safety features. There's, there's an argument for both on there, but yeah. you've still got to have the training. You know, if you've got the ship car, you've got to have the training on how to drive the ship car. You might need less training on a good car or less training on a good bit of technology. 
And it's yeah. it's the barrier to entry, isn't it? If you've got good, sharp tools to start with, picking up the skills is going to be easier than trying to use crap wood and crap it's, swords. It's also safer. Mm, absolutely. It, 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 which sounds, you know, sounds counterintuitive. Oh, it's sharp, therefore it must be dangerous. No, no, no a sharp tool is safer. I, uh, well, every chef will I, tell you, you know, the I've same, got a scar they? on my hand from where I've done an idiotic thing and I've pushed a sharp tool towards myself. That's my fault. But because it was a sharp tool, it was a clean cut. If it hadn't been a sharp tool, it would have been a rip, which would have meant stitches yeah. and much more blood and more likely more damage. Um, and, you know, there, there's a whole... It, it's it's something that, um, you know, any, any decent long-term woodworking school aimed at people who are interested in paying money to attend the course uh, will teach you. Is, is that kind of thing and that's i mean i'm you know i can only speak from the woodwork perspective because that that's what I, I know better than other things um but i'm sure you know i'm not going to say from this point of view of sharpness because blacksmithing sharpness doesn't necessarily correlate until you've reached the end of the product you're making but <laughs> you know if if you go to a forge and they hand you a hammer that is split in half and is the head wobbling on it then it's going to be very difficult to make your bit of metal as flat as you would like it to um and so, so you they hand you a hammer that's sharp you swear at Rasmus an and you tell him can you put a proper bloody handle on this thing you've got this whole stack of them here that haven't been handled for months what have you been doing stop making roses um <laughs> I think it's certainly, I mean, I've heard mechanics talk about the, the same sort of thing. You get you buying cheap socket sets. Yeah, if you buy mm. if you entire an entire socket set is costing you 15 quid, it's probably not going to do a very good job compared to you know, buying a you know, two or three or even one socket for 15 quid. I think it's it's a it's a time versus money thing for that as well, isn't it? You know, if you if you factor in because i've had the same rant with a friend of mine who's who's a professional tradie who is on a day rate and will do kitchens or bathrooms or painting decorating or whatever and he'll be there with with his you know expensive name brand drill driver with uh you know a couple of 10 packs of dewalt number two posi bits and he'll go through a couple of bits a day and it's just like no, just spend three quid on a on a, a wear a diamond impact bit, and then have a try of that for a day. Alternatively, you, know, you could stop using an impact driver and do it properly. Oh no, this is using like a drill driver, <laughs> and, you know, stuff like that. It's just you know, it's that whole thing of like, um, you know, trying to trying to explain that to him that you know the, the time it takes you to to snap the bit or break the socket. And then have to replace it or, or remove the bits of broken whatever, yeah. or you know, yeah. I, I mean, I've ruined projects before by buying cheap screws, you know, and it's having a screw head these, snap are all, off and, these are all learning experiences, though, aren't they? Yeah, this, this is the thing, they are all learning experiences. Neil, there is a challenge for you now. You've just popped in there that impact makes a better sound. Jamie has an impact driver, which is the only impact driver that I say that people are allowed to use. Yep. And it does not make that sound <laughs> that irritates the hell out of anyone who is around them 
particularly not when you're putting an inch and a half long screw into two bits of pre-drilled timber. You do not need an impact driver. Yep. Certainly not yeah. for fitting kitchen cabinet doors. <laughs> yeah, my next door neighbor's got one, and he's always making stuff in the garden. It's just like, okay, even if I wanted to make a YouTube video today, I'm not making a YouTube video today. <laughs> I'm very Everyone needs a hydraulic that I impact driver. Working on building sites before the impact driver became became the norm. The thing is, is they they clearly have their place and they they are are great for what they are designed for. But as mm -hmm. with any tool, people have gone, oh, it, it puts things in faster. It must be better at everything. And so they've they've taken it out of its context and then tried to force it into everything else. And they've gone, oh, I don't need any other tools now. I've got my impact driver. But I think the thing as well is is the the amount of times you see people who'll grab their impact driver that's still on speed three yeah because that's the one that they put all the six inch long screws in yeah into with. their stud walling in yeah yeah <laughs> you know so the, the 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 that impact driver it's a it's a smaller motor unit spins quicker they haven't got all the the heft of the the combi drill that they bought because they didn't yeah. want to have an, an sds so they haven't got that you know really really yeah. long body um and they'll stick the the hex shanked drill bits in to do the pilot hole, and they'll be using just the impact driver. They'll have a masonry bit in the combi drill instead of yeah. in an SDS. Yeah, yeah. Rattling away for twenty minutes trying to drill a hole, and then drilling all the pilot pilot holes with the the impact driver. You've just reminded me of a topic of conversation that I I did want to bring up, and so this will steer us a little bit away from actually talking about power tools and vaguely maker-related things, which is freaking me out a little bit. Um, it is still related, but it's not quite so. Okay. Um, Go for it. it. Well, it's it, this. This is a personal issue, so this is this is less. Dan has an opinion; he's going to rant about it, and this is, is more this therapy about, now. This is therapy now. We've moved okay. into the Dan therapy section of of the podcast. Um. A gentleman came into work who um, had a product in his hands that I had a pretty good idea what it was. Um, but I'm I, so so my role in the shop is I'm I'm sat at a desk but behind the counter, so people can see me and I can see them. But we have counter staff who deal with the generic everyday stuff. I do a lot of buying and selling and interacting with brands and that kind of thing. But I'm also placed where I am so that I am first port of call to ask questions because I have a weird brain that likes to retain information such as product numbers and figures and costs of things and warehouse distribution-y type stuff um, as well as experience with woodworking and finishes etc and this guy came and said oh do you guys sell handles for tools which we don't Yandles does not sell handles nor does no Dandle, four candles yeah or four candles um, but we, you know, standard response, no, but we sell the timber and the machinery and the tools and whatever. So you can make one and we can give you advice on, on the timber that you might need. So, oh no, I haven't got time for that. That's not my thing. Is there anyone here who can make one? My colleague who works a couple of days a week behind the counter said, well, what is it that you're, you're wanting? And so I want an ax handle making. And I know 100% that particular colleague has never made a handle for any tool in his life. He's been a, he was a builder for many years and he's, he's, he's pretty handy and he is one of the guys who loves playing with epoxy resin and stuff and he will give most things a go, but I know he's never made a handle for a tool in his life. Not that that should make a difference. But anyway, 
the guy says, well, I want a handle making for this axe. And my colleague goes, all right, yeah, well, you know, I'd be happy to give that a go. We've got some ash. Here's my card. You know, because it's something we don't sell as a product in work, the rule is that myself or anyone else who chooses to can offer their services separately outside of work, as long as it's made clear that this is not purchased through work. And that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. So my colleague, who has never made a handle for anyone before, has now just made an axe handle for this guy's competition-grade throwing tomahawk. <laughs> okay. Yep. And the guy's clearly happy with the price or happy with the level of work that my colleague has provided for him after a sample piece because he's asked for him to make another 10. Wow. Because, you know, you're throwing these things enough, they get hit yeah. against stuff, they get worn down or whatever. Now... Mm -hmm. My issue isn't with my colleague for taking the initiative. My issue is very much with myself because I know in my heart of hearts that I wouldn't have been able to make one to the standard that I believe it should have been. Mm. But I also know that he's not made one anywhere near the standard that I think it should have been, but the customer was happy with it. And so this is something that I, I don't know if other makers struggle with, but certainly for me is that I won't put myself forward because I don't feel that I've got the required level of information because I knew it was a throwing accent. Mm -hmm. But I also knew that I know nothing more other than being able to identify the fact it was a throwing accent. So to me, I was like, well, that's got to be made out of ash or hickory. It's going to have to be, you know, it's going to have to be balanced. It's going to have to be this. It's going to have to be that. And I would have gone down this whole rabbit hole of getting the aerodynamics and all of this kind of stuff correct. Whereas all he needs is something to hold to make the he head wants go a bit that of wood way. in the handle that's about yay long and feels good in his hand is what he's after. It, it's very, very similar to to the whole blacksmithy thing with like topping tools and stuff. You yeah. know, if like you having a proper handle in your in your hammer because you're swinging that all day, but then a topping tool takes so much abuse. Yeah, that could be a branch, from, like or whatever. Exactly, yeah. and that's, yeah, yeah. that's you know, it's, it's it's good enough to not burn your fingers. That's all you Absolutely. need. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it is definitely you know, it's definitely something that I've it, it well it's not so much about knowing for next time because I probably still wouldn't volunteer to do it. <laughs> Um, do you think that's kind of a bit of imposter syndrome? I know. I just, I don't feel comfortable. Like if someone came in and asked someone, oh, is there anyone here who can make a table? I would not put my hand up because I've mm. never made a table and furniture making and getting things actually square and four legs that are the same length is, is a lot harder than you would think it would be. Um, and I, but I would point them to other people. Um, but as, as Becky just um, popped up in there, um, it's, it's standards. It's levels of everyone's got a level that they're happy for a product to leave their workshop. Yeah. And what you're, saying is you're just too picky. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, ev everyone holds the holds themselves up to a different level. Um, I get teased a little bit about it at work because if someone comes in on my day off and I've had a stock delivery of new products and they put it out on the shelf, the very first thing I'm going to do is take it all off the shelving again because I won't like the way that they've done it because I've got a picture in my head and it's and it's got to be done in this certain way. At the end of the day, the stock is on the shelf. It's presented nicely enough. You can see the price, you can see the product, but it's not the way that I wanted it at the level that I wanted. And I won't ever shout at anyone about it but if they keep changing it, I will pull someone to one side and say, hey, look, you know, this, this is the brand that 
I'm the buyer for, this is the way I want it laid out. Please could you try and make sure that it's the same each time? Because then there's the, you know, any anyone walking to any shop, if stuff gets moved, it's annoying. You you want to make sure that familiarity is there so that people can 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 find it. And Donna, I am seeing your comments and I apologies for not addressing more of them. I do feel like I'm picking other people out of the comment and not you. <laughs> um, that's not the case. Uh, so I am I'm impressed that uh, one of you mates is the top axe throwers in Canada because the Canadians love their axe throwing. Uh, whereas around here, we've just had an axe throwing place open up in Bridgewater, uh, which is uh, its claim to fame locally was that it used to have the cellophane factory. <laughs> I went for an interview. I went for an interview once in in Bridgewater and decided not. I didn't like the school particularly, and there was this distinctive smell. The, it's the cellophane, cellophane smell. And yeah. I was like, "Yeah, no, I'm, I, yeah, and I left, yeah. and didn't get the job. Uh, well, I didn't want the job. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, when yeah, depending on the direction the wind was blowing and where you lived in Bridgewater, made quite a difference to kind of your well, I, of life. I, visited Bridgewater after the factory had been knocked down for or at least not been used for at least two years and the smell was still there mm. you know Just it, it was around I, I mean Andy you've you've mentioned in past on this podcast about growing up where you know opposite factories and you don't put your clothes at certain times of day yeah. or whatever and all that kind of thing so you know what it's like but um, yeah, totally it's really weird that the the office that I work at well that I haven't actually worked out for i was gonna say that's the room you're in now yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) our our main office office you're paid from yeah Yeah. the office i'm paid (laughs) from um is right near a weetabix factory uh among a couple of others and the amount of times you know you pull up to the office in the in the morning and it'll either be this delightful kind of chocolate cereal smell yeah sort of hanging in the air or it will be the smell of like fried chicken nuggets or something and so it's, it, it can go one of two ways you either get out the car and go oh yeah i'm really hungry or just the smell of oil and grease well since we're moving into the food section of, of the <laughs> podcast um my younger brother worked for a number of years in a in a food factory in in a welsh uh, valley um because there weren't many jobs around um and actually going from being one of the least liked in in the factory because he was English, uh, he then compounded the issue by becoming the quality assurance officer. Um, Because (laughs) if if you think I'm stubborn and and, uh, like to make a point, my little brother will beat me hands down on that any point in time. (laughs) Night, Neil. Um, And he, he worked in the factory, so they produced two things. One was baby food and the other one was dog food. Fantastic. And that was all they cooked up because they, their factory produced the same type of packaging. So it was more about the packaging than it was about the food, but they've, they've got all of that kind of that level of stuff that they can put in there. But I, so we used to joke, joke with him all the time. So, so uh, are you, are you the quality assurance officer for every product and how many times do you have to do a taste test? <laughs> <You know? laughs> because let's be honest, neither of them are particularly appealing. <laughs> no. and in some occasions I, I, dog food is more appealing than the baby food well i, I was gonna say yeah. i think the dog foods probably actually do a higher a higher standard than the baby food is as well yeah yeah 
uh, there are a few things allowed to be added to dog food that probably most people wouldn't like to eat though true you well, say most they're... people <laughs> <laughs> well rasmus Wait. is in the chat <laughs> wasn't even me this time i thought you were <laughs> i thought you were referring to owl to be honest we know he's eaten long pig <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's a there's a couple of factories in town nearest me, uh, that literally side by side. One produces, uh, amongst other things, cup of soups. Yeah, <laughs> and the one next door, amongst other things, produces. Well, actually, it, it its entire uh, um, job is to create fragrances. So it's a fragrance <laughs> factory, and they make fragrances for things like washing powder. So depending right. on which factory. So I, I used to work at a school that was you know, literally a quarter of a mile as the crow flies from them. And depending on the direction, you get up the car in the morning in the car park and you know, depending on what you've been cooking up overnight, you'd either kind of get this waft of kind of your beef cup of soup or tomato cup of soup, or you'd kind of have washing powder or kind of fabric softener kind of smells coming through. And if you, so I, I did a, a similar in up in the northwest where I used to live. The, um, there was a, a spice factory right next to a sewage treatment works. So you'd basically like my brother used to go on a bike ride that way fairly regularly. I, I went on a ride with him, and you, you get the wonderful smell of like curries and you know all those you know um, really aromatics, aromatic Indian flavors. Uh, and then straight. Sorry, you know, I zoned out for a moment with the aromatic Indian flavors from the perfumery place. <laughs> <laughs> from the spice factory. Oh, sorry. Right. The spice factory so next to the sewage plant. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you'd be riding along and you get the, the, the lovely smell of the of the spice factory, and then you get the lovely smell of the shit factory about 100 meters later. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I live in Somerset, so all we get is, is the smell of farms. Um, which is only beaten out by the smell of chicken farms in the summertime, mm. um, which is its own unique fragrance that will never be bottled other than for chemical warfare. Um, <laughs> yeah, the only, thing, the only thing worse than the smell of a chicken farm is the sound of a battery farm, if you've mm. ever been in one. It's Thankfully not, horrendous. no. Um, my, my wife worked in one as like a 16, 17 year old as one of the only local jobs that she could kind of get um, for a period of time. But I, yeah, she doesn't really like to talk about it too much. I can well imagine. My, my dad managed a battery egg battery farm um, when I was probably about three, three going on four. I don't know how long we were there for, probably only a year or two. And it was great. It was in the middle of the Forest of Dean with this, this lovely, there was a bungalow next to the, 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 the battery farm, which he had because he was the manager of it. Um, and that was great. Detached bungalow. You could run around it, trees to climb. It was in the middle of the forest. Used to go for walks through the kind of the forest with my mum every sort of day. And it was great. Yeah, kind of yeah, probably the reason why I love forestry um, mm. and things. But I can remember going. I, I mean, yeah, I can't remember that much from that. I've got you know a couple of little key memories of that time because I was, I was very small. But one of them is kind of going into this the battery farm one day and into the into the sheds, 
and just the mm. noise is just horrendous. <laughs> Scarred for life on that one. I was just saying, that's not a key memory. I, I think anyone would want to, uh, to conjure up. The for forests are a fascinating place, though, aren't they? I mean, you know, I, I grew up in Bournemouth, so the New Forest is not that far away, and we'd, we'd every year you'd go out on day trips out and all that kind of thing and um or even closer than that to us was a, a place called moores valley country park that um was pretty yep. much not part of the new forest but probably close enough that you could claim it was an outer echelon of it and they they had some brilliant walks down there and all that kind of thing and I always remember sort of a couple of times with my dad trying to make it a bit more interesting and the very first time that we we'd gone out there I think it was like the third time we'd gone out where I was old enough to pay attention. So I was probably over the age of eight or nine or something. Um, he gave each of us a little list of stuff for us to find while we were on the walk, nice. um, which was great, except for the first thing he had to do is explain to us what half the things were on the list. Um, <laughs> because he'd put things on there like a skeleton leaf. Well, when when you know we wouldn't necessarily know what a skeleton leaf was and for those of you who still don't know what a skeleton leaf is if you if the leaves are left and allowed to sort of deteriorate enough on the, on the ground floor of, of um, a forestry area you, they will the way they rot sometimes they will just leave the skeleton of the actual body of the yes. leaf um well worth googling it to have a look at because they're, they're fascinating you're in effect just got the veins left of the of the plant yeah and it's dried and everything um and it's it's really Some are amazing yeah 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 absolutely can be beautiful to look at and um very interesting so you know that's clearly i wouldn't say a core memory but something that i do remember um but then all the rest of them were like oak leaf right okay i can now identify an oak leaf and then it went down the list of like elm leaf and ash leaf. And that's when I got bored and probably just wandered off and picked a stick up and started playing and hitting my brothers or like <laughs> splashing in the stream or something, you know, that, that it kind of very quickly deteriorated. Yeah. Sword fighting. I mean, why, why wouldn't you? Um, yeah. But I mean, that, that, that's something I, f I find hilarious as well, isn't it? Like if you give two kids sticks, it doesn't matter what age they are they will start to sword fight. Now you can very quickly learn what kind of social media, not social media, um, multimedia they've been exposed to by their parents or relatives, depending on mm. whether they start what, making what noise they make or it becomes yeah. a magic wand or, you know, all of that. Lightsaber. Kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But I mean, when I was a kid growing up, even though we had the, the original Star Wars trilogy, the films I saw long before I saw the Star Wars films were the three Musketeer films. You had the three musketeers and the four musketeers with Oliver Reed in. And for me, they will still be some of the best musketeer films you'll ever see. Because if you watch them back now as an adult, you're like, how was I allowed to watch this as a child? <laughs> like there's some clearly dodgy stuff going in here. One of the guys who is the actor who's supposed to play a character who's permanently drunk is just clearly actually drunk all of the time. You know, a, a suggestion is made to D'Artagnan when, oh, you're, the, the woman you love isn't around at the moment, but the handmaid of someone else has brought you the note and you're a bit bored. So why don't you go and have some time with her for a little bit to entertain yourself? You know, all of this kind of stuff's just going on in the film. You're like, what the yeah. hell is going on? Um, but, but, you know, you don't see, unless it's CGI and you look at some of the Avengers films, when was the last time you saw a film on that scale where there's suddenly 40 or 50 people having a sword fight. 
Mm. You know, like, because they were, they were kind of, they were post sort of Spartacus and all that kind of thing. The only other film I could think of that was close to that afterwards was like Gladiator or something yeah. like that. But, you know, if you, if you, anyone's seen the films or if you haven't, I'll go and watch them. They're, they're brilliant, um, good fun. Complete nonsense, but actually relatively close to the books in a vague sort of way um, that will keep things entertained. And they um, just just the set pieces. And you've just got to think, I'd love to go back and watch and actually see one of the stunt coordinators like point out where, oh, so-and-so got hurt here. You know, because <laughs> there must have been a time where like there's only so many times you can do that kind of a set piece without, you know, or someone slipped or... Because sometimes mm. they're, they're fighting amongst, you know, uh, I think one of them in, in one of the scenes, there's like, I'm not sure if they're at a convent or somewhere, but there's there's lots of, of washing lines with big sheets hung over them that have been dyed and are drying. And people are constantly like pulling them out of the way or stabbing people through them and all that kind of stuff. And it's not CGI. It didn't exist. You know, these were filmed in like the late 70s, early 80s. So there clearly must have been stuff done to try and minimize accidents but at the same time was there no i just uh, things like that i i kind of i i love mm. i love watching that stuff and i haven't watched them for years but um i'm gonna have to look them out and have a have another look but that that kind of a film in my mind hasn't really been quite sort of you know they haven't found the story that fits that yet and let's be honest the film should be about the story not about oh, i want to see a load of blokes sword fighting and let's build a story around that <laughs> I think there were. I think there were much higher instances of kind of yeah, accidents on set yeah. in oh, those days, yeah. and I it's, think it was just seen as it was one of those things. You know? One um, of the best yeah. scenes is in the second film, so the Four Musketeers. I forget uh, Christopher Lee's in it and plays Cardinal Rich, not Cardinal Richelieu, who's the, he's like his right hand man, who's actually the, the sword fighter. He's like the the the. Um, um, captain of the King's Guard or something like that. I'm, I can't quite remember which, which character name he is. Um, but he's going to get executed at the beginning of the second film. And so they line him up in front of a firing squad. And bearing in mind, this is set in like the 1700s. So we're talking matchlocks. You know, mm. <laughs> like why they wouldn't just hang mm. him. But, you know, they, they do. And this whole thing's being drawn out and he stood there and they fire and every single person misses. You know, and it's just like, and, you know, just, the guy starts screaming, and oh, you idiots, you all miss, you start reloading. And Christopher Lee's character says, oh, no rush. You know, and this this is kind <laughs> of that, that pre-Black Adder moment, but it's got that level of humour in it as well. And it's just, it's oh, there's all kinds of just little things in it that I, I think were very well written, uh, great time and delivery. But, you know, I'm, I'm reminiscing about something that probably doesn't hold up if I sat and watched it again now. Um, well, a lot of films don't, do they? I mean, yeah, mm. I, I, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about, I mean, I, yeah, I can remember kind of when I was kind of, yeah, late teens, early 20s, you know, watching things like the Jean-Claude Van Damme films and Steve Cigar films. I loved them, thought they were great. And, yeah, they're absolutely, yeah. I tried watching a, a couple of them probably about 10 years ago, and it was just like, oh, this was this is really actually quite poor. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, but American martial arts films have come a long way, though, haven't they? Like, you know, there's been a, there's been a been a big change in that kind of thing. I mean, you don't have um, there there isn't that kind of 
American martial artist of the generation anymore, is there? You, you had John Paul no. Van Damme, you had Steven Scal, and they're still going and doing whatever. But there, the, there is, I've forgotten his name, but he, he tends to do a lot of stunts in other films. Um, it really bugs me. He, he was on the um, Corridor crew on some of their stunt shows, and he's an English He's an English stuntman who's, who's a martial artist. Uh, um, can't remember his name. It's, it's but he was in one I, of the uh, films. Can't remember, but anyway, but he's the closest yeah. thing that I'm aware of. Um, who's who's kind of like a uh, a Western uh, martial artist that is kind of a bit known. There there isn't mm. really that style of film being made anymore. Um, but if you look at I mean, even if you twist it slightly, if you think about like boxing movies, you know, the boxing movies we've seen have been a continuation of the Rocky Balboa series. You know, you've got Creed 1 and Creed 2, which are, are in the same kind of, the, you know, the same uh, world. Um, and a lot of that kind of film, I think it, it's it's just interesting to see how the, the stories have moved on. People want, they either want a continuation of an old story or they want something completely different. And that's when you get films like um, Tenet, which I still haven't seen yet. Or, no, I um, haven't either. What was, yeah. uh, what was the other one? For it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, and it's and it's different and it's challenging and it and makes your, your brain hurt a little bit or sometimes you just get bored because you don't get it or whatever the I, case may be. I, 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 yeah, you get, I think you, I've seen a few films in the last few years where there's kind of more, perhaps more interesting stories uh so things like uh what's it scarlett johansson in one where she ends up taking some drug and ends up being coming super powered yeah and yeah you got that, <laughs> kind of got, you got that stuff yeah yeah i can't i can't oh, remember what that one was called um, was that, that wasn't she was it no it was very similar though it was a one word title with her name in yeah her, her I say, it was that, mm. and she's kind of yeah, using mental powers He's, as well as physical right. powers yeah to kind of overcome a kind of yeah. A corridor full of yeah, Asian yeah. assassin martial yeah. artists with guns and clubs and yeah. everything else. I, th yeah. I mean, I think if I think the closest you're going to find to sort of action hero that everyone relates to at the moment is 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 going to be Keanu Reeves and John Wick. Yeah, um, which do have a very loose storyline, which actually is not an original storyline, but it's all about the execution and the way things have been filmed and just kind of. I mean, it's little things. Like, on the execution. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's little things like the um, the myth about him killing someone with a pencil in the first film and then mm. seeing him do it in the second film yeah. and all of that kind of stuff. And, I, and I, there's a scene in the second film which is so clearly an homage to The Good, The Bad and The Ugly where the guy goes into a gun store and makes a gun out of the different parts from different guns and then that assembles the gun that he likes to use and is good with and you see keanu reeves break into a, cab a cabinet and assemble a six shooter from these different parts of the guns shoots one guy with it and drops the gun and runs off that scene did not need to exist but it was clearly <laughs> an homage back to that other scene from the western and kind of that mm. you know the, the the passing or the, the tipping of the hat or whatever the case may be um and I think that there's a lot of cinema these days you you will get locked into a franchise and they'll follow things through. You know, I mean, Marvel, they, they're going to keep going 
until people stop going and seeing the films. And I mean, we saw the latest Thor film because it came out on Disney Plus last week. And actually, I was quite glad I didn't go to the cinema and see it. It was okay. It told some more of the story, but it, you know, it, it wasn't as meaningful to me as some of the other stories have been. But then that's why there's the whole world for them for them to choose from. Um, but then you've got older films like Rocky Balboa. So Rocky 1 is what Rocky 1 is. Rocky 2 and 3, they're kind of, uh, you know, and, and depending on your your nationality and your race and your age, different ones of the Rocky series will be very meaningful to you. But I actually think that the most recent, John Rambo and Rocky Balboa, I think were the two films, each one of them was the best from each series. Um, because he gave the character... A, a more rounded kind of personality, certainly in, in Rocky Balboa anyway, John Rambo, not necessarily quite so much, you could argue. Um, but the the fact that you've got this character and spoiler alert for anyone who's not seen Rocky Balboa, I'll give you the 10 seconds required. He's realistically, he's got nothing left to live for. His, his wife's died, who, you know, Adrian is gone. She's not there anymore. His, his brother-in-law's been kicked out of his job. He's older. He's got his restaurant that is old enough now that people will go to because they like a bit of Italian food, but they don't necessarily want to hear his boxing stories. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, he's not really that kind of... He's not in the limelight anymore. He's not been in the ring for many years. But the concept of the story is that the current heavyweight champion has had his stats put into a computer generator to see if anyone in history would ever have beaten him. And it comes back with the fact that Rocky Balboa would most likely have beaten him or at least drawn. Mm. And so, of course, because the current heavyweight isn't going to get any fights from anyone because no one wants to fight him because he's a maniac and, oh, he might actually kill someone in the ring. Oh. Um, and, it, and you end up with Rocky Balboa kind of sitting there going, well, actually, maybe I have still got something to say maybe I have still got, you know, and in his phrase, he's, he's still got something in the basement that he thinks he kind of needs to have a conversation about. Um, and it can actually just be that although he's just been very stoic and manly on the outside, maybe on the inside, the fact that his wife's died and all of this other stuff's happened in his life he, and his, his son's now estranged and doesn't want to speak to him. Maybe mm -hmm. he's got a little bit of anger that he'd like to take out on someone. And if he can <laughs> do it in such a way, the, and, and maybe just prove to himself that he isn't the loser that he was in the very beginning of the story, you know? Yeah. And I, so I think there's a lot more heart to that kind of a thing whilst wrapping it around um, basically one long fight scene in a ring. Um, but the only other film that I've seen recently and I will watch hundreds of times is the film Warrior with Tom Hardy and the other guy whose name I can never remember because he's not British. <laughs> I still haven't seen that either. You honestly, that, that is Warrior is a is a really really interesting film because although it's it's based around fighting in the UFC style and in the ring and everything, that is not what the story is about. Mm. The story is about family and a formerly alcoholic father and and you know rehabilitation and kind of all of those kind of stuff. And it's it's a I I enjoy it. Uh, my wife enjoys it as well. It's not an easy watch necessarily it's not a, oh let's just put this on in the background sunshine and rainbows um but it it's well shot they don't draw out the fight scenes they're there 
that they don't go right every fight scene must be seen from beginning to end at one point one of the main characters is fighting what you think is going to be one of the biggest fights there and they they start halfway through the fight they're both already bloodied they're on the second round you know because it's not pertinent to the story so yeah, you don't just, need to see, so they don't yeah. cram in it gratuitously it, it doesn't further the story so you don't need to see it Movie section over. What's next? Um... Well, I'm just, I'm just going to make a suggestion actually for a film. A film I enjoyed, uh, watched I think last year now um, on Netflix. Netflix original, uh, The Old Guard. Yes, so he's Theron. Another one um, based on a comic book that I hadn't ever seen, but yeah, yeah I quite enjoyed. I hadn't, I hadn't yeah. either. And it, it, I kind of put it on, kind of it was just like it was late at night. I didn't want to go to bed. I just wanted to put something on. I didn't want to put something on that I had to think about. I didn't want to put something on that I wanted to really watch. Yeah. I just wanted to have something on sort of TV. I thought, well, this this kind of I didn't even kind of know what it was about, really. Put it on. Yeah. And just like it got to the end. I was like, I really enjoyed that. And I'm looking forward yeah. to hopefully next year they can bring out a sequel. Yes. Yeah. It was it was, it was a, I wouldn't say it was a, it wasn't a great story, but it was it was it was a great kind of film for kind of yeah late night yeah, yeah. it'd been it'd been even better with a yeah a pint and a yeah pie and chips or something but, <laughs> you know, didn't have any of those oh, but... no, hang on now hang on we're getting to this cross genre thing now we've got movies and food to consume whilst watching movies and this might mm. actually be a realm that hasn't been touched by fools with tools could well be I it. yeah I, I'm not, I don't remember. I think there's a possibility someone's alluded to it in the past in one of the episodes, but if not, I think, mm, I think it might actually be a topic that hasn't been covered. So I know a uh, mate of mine at work, he uh, there's a, a fried chicken place near the cinema that he goes to, so he'll quite often get like a bucket of fried chicken and uh, like a can of red stripe or something like that, and then go into the cinema with that. And uh, Apparently that's that doesn't generally go down well with any other no. people in there. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I've got it, it's weird, isn't it? If you're in the comfort of your own home, I'll quite often eat I'll quite often eat an evening meal in front of the yeah. TV. Yeah. And that can be, you know, whatever that is cooked on or not. If I'm going to a cinema, it really, really bothers me if anyone around me, if I can smell a hot dog or they're eating nachos or mm. anything cooked at all. Oh, like because, it's even popcorn. If the next year there's crunching it and the smell yeah. of it, if you don't want it, I, I can like, kind of cope with popcorn because it's been that traditional food of cinema for for long yeah, enough. It's, it's, it kind of feels cinema smell, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it, it's the it's the smell of a hot dog when I might be you know watching a, a fist fight or a or whatever else the thing might be. You're like, <laughs> this this is not working well with my brain at the moment. Um, I mean, it's even worse if there's a love scene, but we're, we're not going to dwell too much on that. But, you know, it just, the, I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't, if you're in a cinema, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of hot food being consumed or fizzy drinks being opened and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's um, the person with the boiled sweets that's there. Yeah. Unwrapping and then everyone. checking the colour. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, I, I like many people, I'm kind of, you, know, you, you get to a certain age where you're like, no, the cinema will be better enjoyed with no one else in it. <laughs> yeah, I, I've not been for for years now, but um, me and a friend used to generally go to watch the Marvel stuff at the cinema. Yeah, um, and we'd always wait two or three weeks after release before we went. So we just like 
religiously avoiding spoilers for a couple of yeah. weeks after release. Um, just purely so we could go when there's only a handful of people in the in the theatre. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I. <laughs> the last thing we went and saw at the cinema, and I'm glad we did, was Top Gun Maverick. Mm. And that that was worth seeing in the cinema, even with all the women crying around me at various points in the film. Um, either because Tom Cruise still looks good with his shirt off at the age that he does, or, or various other reasons that I won't go into CGI. for it. Yeah. <laughs> CGI. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, I mean, but again, that that film, you know, it was it made no pretense about what it was going to be. You know, if you if mm. you you know, people who loved the first film and went to see a sequel wanted to basically see, have the same feelings they did when they saw the first film, and yeah. you walked out of that film without those feelings, then you weren't watching the screen. And I, I think it was I think it was quite well made. It was cheesy enough and all the rest of it. But um yeah, good fun. The last film I saw in the cinema was uh the Spider Man where he goes on we went abroad, when he went to abroad. Long way from home. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the far, one. And I mean that's a obviously it's got the that's far, a, from home, pre, far from home. Yeah, pre pre, pre pandemic. No way home, which I still haven't seen yet. And so I can't watch the new Doctor Strange film because I've got I've got to watch them in order, yeah. and it's bugging me now because it's bloody Spider Man's yeah. not just yet because it's on Prime well, and you have to pay for it. <laughs> well, we we when we went, I took my two daughters, and we went on a. It was literally it was a Monday morning during mm. term time because we were homeschooled. We were still yeah. both were at home. There were literally the three of us in the in the cinema, and it, it was a new cinema. It's only a couple mm. years old. The seats, you know, and you know, they they were going around trying different seats, at different points yeah. of the film, just to. Huh. <laughs> huh. <laughs> kind of, kind of, but um, uh, I understood that reference. <laughs> Yay! I didn't. They had. Um, Call yeah, yourself got, a physicist. Kind of, Big Bang Theory, Andy. Sorry. Never seen it. I know. Never seen we it. know. Never seen it. But anyway, it was it was just lovely. Yeah, there was there was no yeah, we could choose where we wanted to sit. Yeah, we kind of like yeah, I think I adjusted my seat once, but, but yeah, they were trying different seats and it was just like yeah, yeah, yeah that was that was perfect for me. Yeah. When um one of my first jobs was uh, I, I used to work as sort of the guy who would who would take in the deliveries uh, an Argos in the centre of Bournemouth. Um, and because it was in the town centre, and obviously the lorry wouldn't be allowed in at like eight o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock or any time later. So the, the lorry would turn up at five in the morning. Mm. So you had to get there early enough to be unlocked, ready for the lorry. So inevitably that meant that you were there for 4.30. Um, and then you'd be unloading the lorry. Um, and I was normally finished with my day's work by 10 in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got time and a half before 8.30. So it was, it was not a bad little job for a yeah. 17, 18-year-old for a little while um but you've you've been up since about four sometimes three thirty if i had to walk down but i wasn't tired enough yet because you'd go to bed early enough that you, you kind of your circadian rhythm wasn't too badly affected you could go to bed at 10 and you'd still got enough sleep at that age that it wasn't a problem mm -hmm. um so i'd go to the cinema because the cinema opened at like 10 30 and i'd just go and sit and watch a film on my own in like the middle mid, you know early morning sort of for them and I, the only one I can remember specifically going and seeing was Once Upon a Time in Mexico, um, 
which was the the Robert Rodriguez film, uh, which was kind of a, a follow on from Desperado, which was great fun to watch. And it was great because there were again there was two three of us in the cinema something like that, and you could you could actually pay attention to the film without being interrupted. But um, and yeah. no phone screens popping up. No, no phone screens at all back then. No, it was it was just before the, the mobile phone was really popular enough for people to, and even if it was, people wouldn't have been looking at their phones in the cinema because there was no internet on the phone, and you couldn't mm -hmm. get text message inside there because you yeah. couldn't get signal. So it was, you know, at worst you might have someone trying to play Snake during the trailers when it was actually trailers <laughs> as opposed to just adverts for cars or perfume. Yeah, but you know, what year? What year would have that been roughly? Give me a think. Oh, when did Once Upon a Time? Late nineties. The cinema. Yeah, I mean, it was it was late nineties. Uh... Late late nineties. I was living in Bournemouth. Two thousand and three. We, we could have walked. We could, uh, gone by then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could still have walked past you at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I left Bournemouth yeah. in two thousand and one. Yeah. Uh, did you, what, did you teach at a school in Bournemouth, did you, Andy? I taught in Pool. All right, yeah. So I taught in Pool, lived in Bournemouth, because didn't want to live. Didn't live in Pool. No one wants to live in Pool. <laughs> was it Pool well, Grammar? Yeah, yeah. Was it Pool High? Oh Grammar? God, no, no, it was Pool High. <laughs> it wasn't the Grammar. It was Pool High, the old Henry Harbin. No, I I was a um, I was a I was a proud proud uh, child of the Winton School for Boys um, school, which. Um, I was I was the first intake where they consolidated. They when my older brother went there for a couple of years, they were on two separate campuses. So if you got some unfortunate scheduling, then you'd have to sprint from sort of six roads apart from one to the other between lessons, um, which obviously wasn't really ideal for stopping kids from not going to school. Because yeah, they yeah. go, oh, I've got to go to a lesson at the other campus, and that was the last you saw of them. Um, so I, I was the first intake into a brand new school. Like literally, it was it was built from scratch next door to it was an all boys school next door to an all girls secondary school, and we changed our times to be with them. With the idea being in the future that eventually it would become one massive school. Um, and within the first six months, the headmistress of the all girls school said, "No, your boys are a bad influence on my girls. This will never happen." And three days later, her head girl was found in the middle of the high street, smacked out on heroin. But you know. It's um, <laughs> bearing in mind that there was no influence from the boys at all of our school to get to that stage. But, you know, I know, but it, it was a uh, yeah, brand new school. And unusually the, that we I went to secondary school, dating myself very much now, 1995, I started secondary school. And it had a full woodworking workshop and a full metalworking workshop with a forge in it with acetylene torches. Which, you know. You yeah, wouldn't like it. even yeah. begin to think about that now. And that that whole yeah. wing also had it had a design and technology department, it had a cookery department, it had an electronics department, uh, textiles and art, all in that same wing, all together, which obviously makes sense. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was it was a very exciting time. And then you know, as I said, you get to sort of GCSE level, and half of it's taken away because the teachers have all retired. Uh, I, I can the categorically big, big say that. Is, I could have taught you. Yeah. <laughs> could have done. Yeah. But for oh, anyone still God, down yeah. in Bournemouth, the, the Arts University in Bournemouth is absolutely fantastic. 
It is. Mm. I modelled there once. Did you? I did, yeah. I went to mm. Bournemouth University because, you know, I'm lazy. Um, and I could stay at home. <laughs> so I, I went to Bournemouth Uni, which is right next door to the Arts Uni. And um, one of the girls who was working the same part-time job as I did was doing the fashion course in the Arts Institute. And myself and one of the other lads, they're still with some of the guys at the end of year, first year project. They need some models. Would you be up for it? And we both said yes before she even said, oh, you know, you'll get paid. And we were like, not bothered, whatever. You know, just just let us know when we'll be there, and it was uh, yeah turned up, and all you had to do was just put on whatever wackadoodle costume they'd come up with, and then stand there in front of the judges. There was no photos or anything, so it was quite entertaining, really. Particularly when there were there were five there were five of you, and um, one of the guys had designed all these costumes, and every single costume was white, and only single layered. <laughs> And one of the five guys didn't quite get why this might be an issue, particularly not even though he was going commando. So there, there had to be a couple of discreet conversations that were had beforehand, <laughs> before, <laughs> before everyone kind of got, got wielded to stand in front of the judges, um, which was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there's no photos, unfortunately. There's no hidden vault oh, anywhere of modeling photos, but I've got to get that comment in just to make sure that we, we keep uh, the Irish knife making community interested <laughs> in this the podcast. <laughs> well, I was, I was just wondering if Jamie done any modeling. Me? No, yeah. not at, not at, not at the art university. No. <laughs> <laughs> so only two of us are done modeling. Then. There you go. See, yeah. no, I, 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 a I, little bit, but not at, not at art uni. <laughs> but, um, Life drawing class. I suppose technically, I did uh, I did two D modelling because we we did a lot of CAD drawings for their refurbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did I did some I did um I did some modelling once. It was but it was underground literally. It was um for the it was for a production. The guy who was taking the photos was uh, mole. No, he was he was um he was being employed by the National Caving Association to produce or to get photos for leaflets. So took a bunch of photographs in a cave that was very difficult to get into, both physically and uh logistically. It's a locked cave. In fact, it's the last time I ever went caving, actually, just just coincidentally, not it wasn't intentionally that was the last cave. Um but it was a case of yeah, I had they, they had three of us doing it. There was a the guy who got me in on it, uh old friend, literally is old, he's in his seventies now. He was um he was he was wearing traditional caving gear, um, in terms of kind of you know, a, a furry suit covered with a, a waterproof boiler suit type thing. There was a a, a woman about probably about my age, probably at the time, maybe a couple of years younger, uh, who's wearing a wetsuit, which is kind of also kind of you know, often used by cavers. And I had to wear the novice gear, even though I wasn't a novice caver. Um, so I literally had a thin boiler suit on over the top of tracksuit bottoms and a rugby shirt and 
Yeah, I almost ended up with hypothermia on that trip. Not, not, you know, I mean, obviously certain people would be able to tell the difference, but couldn't you just gone to like Wookiee Hole? Like, and just staged it? Would that not have been just as easy? No, to... the, ca the, ca the, the <laughs> cave in question, uh, whose exact name just slips my mind, because it's one of those kind of, there's a couple of caves with very similar names. Uh, if I remember right, it's Ogof Krieger Funnen. Uh, has some of the most unique uh, heliotypes in the world. Um, okay. There's there's parts of it where even we we weren't allowed in. There's there's some of it is is gated anyway to stop just any old person going in. But then there are sections within it that are then kind of yeah, only very very few people get to go into. I mean there's there's sections of it where more people have been in on the moon than it been in there uh where there are very very unique uh heliocytes that have kind of grown in interesting ways and the the majority of the photographs that were taken were taken in a chamber with straws so so, so stalactite straws um that were kind of three meters long three to five meters long and there's hundreds of them and they're just hanging down from the ceiling and it's just it's just one of the most amazing sights to see when you kind of sort of go in um and they they they, they literally vibrate with your breath yeah, if you're breathing and talking they are literally they're moving that's so, not so scary terrible. at all <laughs> but then you get you, you you go a bit further along and you get into a chamber that's big enough to take saint paul's cathedral mm. Yeah, it's it's just one of those amazing. It's just it's this totally unique cave in, in many respects. This, this sounds very familiar to a scene from like one of the Blade films. Are you sure that the the people who are only specifically allowed part of the way through aren't like the vampires who own the place or something and weren't just scoping you guys out? I'm I'm sure I'm I'm sure there was a fight in a cave like that in a Blade film, wasn't there? Or some vampire film anyway. I mean, the, the, there was definitely. I mean, definitely one of the guys that was kind of. You know, around the scene, the caving scene in the area, was definitely kind of of dwarf dwarven stock. Yeah, <laughs> he was. Yeah, he was short and round. The surname Renfield. I can't really say now, but yeah, he, he he. I mean, he had. Yeah, he had a magnificent beard. Mm. He was short. I mean, he was. He was probably only about five foot, five foot two at tops. Yeah, and he was. He was the same sort of dimensions as a barrel. Yeah, but he could he could Flat go top. through caves. Yeah, he could go through caves. Yeah, yeah, just he had a knack was... of knowing exactly where to go and didn't need a yeah. lantern <laughs> to look through. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And apparently, the, I I I've never had it confirmed, but there, there was rumor that he had seven sets of caving gear, so that he had one for every day of the week because <laughs> he used to go caving so often. And so yeah, it would dry out. You could rinse them off. Yeah, at the end of a trip, it would be dry for the next week. You to say that there was a rumor that he had seven sons who had seven sons. <laughs> oh, I was <laughs> I was waiting for the seven sets of kit and a <laughs> wife called Snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he um. Oh no, he didn't have any kids. Uh, just to look back well. to your your um. Almost hypothermia, though, Andy. Are you suggesting yeah. that a bad caver blames his kit? <laughs> um, I'm saying that poor kit in the wrong circumstances will lead to death. Yeah. That was just a callback for Dan's benefit. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
yeah of i mean i mean it's the same it's the same sort of thing actually yeah the the poor kit yeah there is an element of you know it doesn't matter how good you are if you've got rubbish yeah, kit absolutely yeah it does doesn't yes a master craftsman with a a rubbish saw will probably make something better than a, a complete beginner because they know how to actually hold the saw and they know how to use the saw uh, the, but they're still going to be struggling to get a clean yeah. cut because it's tearing the, the fibers of the wood rather than cutting them but then it's still going to be yeah, if they've got the right kit if they've got good kit it doesn't have to be the best kit but if they've got good kit it's still going to be better and the same the same for sport yeah if you if you if you're climbing and you've got you know, a pair of worn out climbing boots, you will not be able to climb at such a high standard as somebody of equivalent climbing ability wearing new climbing boots with nice sharp edges and clean rubber. It's and no arms. And no arms, yeah. There's actually, there's, that's actually a great video. There's a guy whose name I've forgotten now. He was a famous he was he was really famous in the climbing scene british climbing scene in the the late 70s and through most of the 80s and into the 90s and there's a a great clip somewhere i'll have to see if i can find it i have to remember his name as well uh of him climbing up quite not a, not a, not vertical but a, a kind of on a, a fairly big boulder the sort of thing that the average climber is going to be using his hands and he does completely hands-free and he's wearing, if I remember correctly, he's wearing a tweed suit. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> Marvellous. Marvellous. There's a there's a guy I follow on TikTok who um, I'm, I don't think it's one of the ones I've shared with Jamie and bombarded him with. Um, but he's, he's a Scottish gentleman who is one of these guys who just has latched into the everything's going to be okay kind of conversation that you know the world the world's like not very great at the moment but you can be all right you know take bad people out of your life that kind of thing but rather than sitting in a room and talking to people he's wandering around the scottish highlands in his kilt and his tweed jacket with his his curled stick or whatever and and he's a stonemason as well so he's you know he's, he's despite the fact that he's in his sort of late 50s possibly early 60s he's got that that heft and solidity to him that makes you believe him even more and he, and he speaks with that just really nice brogue and it just kind of all ties in lovely and they're quite edited well together uh, i'll have to look him up because he's, he's definitely got a very much uh scottish name that's perfect for it as well um <laughs> but it just yeah i mean th th there's a lot of um nonsense on social media but some of the good things that have come out of it do uh do work quite well and, and I just found it. I'll post it. I'll post it. I'll post it in the um, the show notes in the morning. It was a guy yeah. called Johnny Dawes, and for those who know anything about climbing, UK climbing, he was climbing a uh, quite a large boulder graded at E3, which is the extreme sort of E starts at E123 is the sort of extreme level of climbing. So it's it's blooming hard, and he's doing it hands free. Mm. It's amazing, but he's I mean he's very interesting guy from the climbing world. The person I'm thinking of, his name is Jock Manson. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just like Scottish serial killer kind of vibe. I was going to say, is that Manson as in like yeah, yeah, Marilyn yeah, Manson 100%. as well? And, and he justifiably has 512.7 thousand people following him on TikTok. 
and literally all he does is is wander around in his kilt and his tweed and just sometimes he'll just be sat on a, some steps outside and you know a ruined building in the highlands somewhere and just be sharing his thought for the day kind of thing or and and it, it and it's always just kind of encouraging and just sort of um reminding us of our, our place in the universe he occasionally will come and sort of talk to you about the stones that he's working on and you know i like to take my time on this because i know this was formed over thousands of years and why should i take two minutes and ruin it and blah blah, blah. you know and it's just it's just a nice nice way of talking and, and, and that kind of thing so if anyone needs sort of just a little bit of reassurance in their life i can i can certainly point you towards him or just to, to delight in watching a, a bearded scotsman wandering around and you know, he, he's kind of the guy that you you would potentially think of when you have that delightful quote at the end of Braveheart where he talks about them being warrior poets. That's He kind of he fits that picture very nicely, um, mm. whether, or not, whether or not people believe that in gen generic about the majority of Scottish people, I don't know or not. I, I happen to like them quite a lot, but um, not, not all of them would fit that category. I don't think, same as, you know, not all English people are uh, football hooligans. True. I, I, I must admit, I, I, when I was coming back over from Germany last week, um, I was chuckling to myself in... Well, because you, you've been to Bremen Airport, haven't you? Yeah. Um, and, you know, in that, that section out the back where all the Ryanair flights are, where you, you have to sort of walk to the other end of the airport, yeah. past all the, the nice airporty stuff, and then into just the waiting room at the end. Yeah, with the broken arcade games that don't work. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> um, and you've got four gates, two of which are the flights to the UK, so they've got passport control. Uh, the other one, one of the other ones goes to Mallorca, I think, which is like the, the Germany's most visited other place for you know holiday destinations. Um, and, of course, the, the, the only British voices I could hear in, in this waiting area for uh, over the course of two flights leaving, um, was a load of uh, very drunk or very hungover um, British lads uh, in groups. Yeah, it's not, it's just it, stop perpetuating stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> what you're, you're shocked that there are groups of young lads who might have been out on a stag do or around cheap flight airports. <laughs> well. <laughs> Not shocked by it, just annoyed yeah. that it was such yeah. the stereotype. the cycle, yeah, yeah. I I find it fascinating how um, I mean I I know a, a large bunches of us enjoy people watching, <laughs> and um, I find it fascinating how few faces and body types there are in the world, and how you can see very much the kind of almost i mean andy you must have had a great experience with this with teaching the kids you could probably almost guess the way that the parents looked and dressed and spoke by looking at the child yeah you know and it, and it's that kind of thing and you it, and, and this this is me projecting very much and 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 being um very um not judgmental but yeah i'm, I'm very stereotyping and all that kind of stuff mm. Um, but at the same time, there's always that element of truth in there. You know, you can you can kind of spot from a distance the ones who possibly are more likely to go to the pub with their parents at the weekend. 
um, or uh, you know, are more likely that they they've got after school further study in education in either music or you know some something extra kind of thing. You can kind of start to pick out the little the trends in humanity um, mm. the way it is, which is interesting and also I think quite unfortunate because um, I mean I came from Joe Average family, and you know the, the, there was never. There was never any push for people to excel in our family, but there was also never, I mean, if, if you if you failed, you had to have failed pretty catastrophically for there to be disappointment. Yeah. Because there were just enough of us in the family that there wasn't time or the ability to kind of focus on any one of us. And there wasn't money for us to have extracurricular stuff. So there wasn't like, oh, you know, so-and-so is doing really well at playing the piano out of the four of you who are, we're teaching or anything, because there wasn't that. Um, it just didn't happen. Um, so it, it took me quite a while to understand that not all families are the same, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, which is, which is that weird scenario you're in as a kid growing up is what, what do you mean that not everyone eats the same things or has the same way? Or, how come my friend's cereal is all chocolate and mine's like cornflakes, you know, and which might be nutritiously better for you. But when, when you're any age up until the age of 18, you'd like, no, I, I, I want the chocolate cereal. I mean, um, I've got to stop you there. Dad. Some of us might still be preferring the chocolate cereals. No, no, no. no what I'm saying is, when, <laughs> when you're, up, up, I'm talking about up to an age where you're still living at home and you don't have control over what what's purchased, and you'll 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 eat what is provided yeah. for you. Um, what I know, no, no. Once you're in your own home, like golden nuggets, uh, cocoa pops, all all of the the good stuff was 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 sort of definitely purchased and then towards the end of the year you, you use baileys instead of milk uh no no quite no no never like that. <laughs> although but funnily enough now i i prefer like my default cereal that i prefer are, are tesco's own brand maltese which are basically shreddies by any other name but cheaper and um, with less sugar and i will quite happily sit and eat a bowl of them and, and that will do me fine as a treat I will, you know, we, we might in an evening have cocoa pops with vanilla ice cream. Nice, nice. Which is it? Which is yeah. a nice little combo, you know. Raisin wheats is my that's my little treat cereal. Raisins? How are raisins a treat, Jamie? What are you doing to well, yourself? It's the raisin wheats as a as a thing. Not like choco pillows or something like that, or just like raisin wheats. Yeah. That's, that's, that's almost my... like oh, to a treat to myself. I'm going to give myself a healthy, nutritious, balanced diet. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, clearly I'm, I'm the picture of, of uh, health and moderation anyway, to begin with. Well, you said you've lost a lot of weight since uh, since Makers. This is true. This, this is, is true. mostly through stress and chronic diarrhea, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> that loses his left leg. Yeah, Yeah. well, yeah. you know, amputations happen, you know. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I, I don't eat cereal anymore just because I have issues with milk mostly. But I yeah. used to like, a, I had, my favourite cereals were probably either a, a really high quality muesli with a variety of kind of I like I like the fruits I like the kind of different yeah. types of sort of seeds. Muesli's my go-to. Something like the Dorset Dorset's cereal company or whatever they're called. Um, but I eat far too much of any yeah box yeah. When they kind of reckon it's like 15 servings or something, I'm thinking it's like five. That's just lie. Pour, yeah. pour the yeah. milk into the bag. Or the um, the ones with kind of you know, clusters clusters of stuff yeah. together. The, the, the honey, and oak, honey and oak clusters have got to be. Yeah. 
absolutely. They're, they're, well, Jordan, yeah. Jordan's yeah. clustered. I can't remember yeah. what it's called now. Like a granola, like a nice yeah. sort of sweet granola. Yeah, it's kind of there. Well, this was this is how sad it was. I remember as a kid being really upset that we didn't have, we we didn't get shredded wheat, and we didn't get official proper um, Weetabix. And the only reason that I really wanted us to have official proper Weetabix was because you got the little tokens for schools that you could collect. And yeah. our headmaster was always banging on about it. And and we were like, I, I was pretty much the only kid in the class who never provided any of these because we we had like the Sainsbury's own brand um version instead um which at the time you know people now talk about Sainsbury's as if depending on which part of the country you're from it's 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 slightly it's it's a possibly higher tier supermarket it's, um, I would say Sainsbury's is is, uh, is posh to me yeah well but back then there wasn't a Tesco's it didn't exist hmm. you had Quicksave or you had Sainsbury's and that was it in certainly in the south that was your choice it's quick save Sainsbury's or um, the local corner shop kind of thing. Mm. Um, so you know, see, but I was I was young. We didn't have there were there weren't options for other generic brands. You only could have yeah. So we used to get we used to I just get um, Weetabix sometimes. We used to have it with butter. Yeah, buttered Weetabix. Yeah, my mum used to say, "Oh, you know, if if you're hungry for a snack in the evening, I'll oh, go get some Weetabix and put some butter or jam on it or yeah. something." Because we haven't got any milk left, or you can't have the milk your dad yeah. needs in the morning, whatever. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Because we only had a so we milk was delivered in a bottle, and there's only a certain amount of milk. Yeah. So yeah, yeah we sometimes get that. Or it'd be the porridge would be a kind of a. We have that now, for porridge. I had some porridge the other night, and for the first time in a long time, and one of Janie's patients. For those who don't know, on the podcast, Janie's my wife. I've referred to her as wife several times. Her name's Janie. <laughs> Um, one of her patients who is Scottish strongly recommends that if you have your porridge, that you have it with a shot of whiskey and some brown sugar in it. And oh, having tried mm. it, having tried it, I can tell you that fucking works. That is a really, that is yeah. really, like, particularly on like an autumn or winter evening. If you're wanting that little kind of, uh, oh, I could, I could just, yeah, do probably not for breakfast before driving here. to work. Yeah, not a breakfast. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you've only James had to go walk up some stairs. It's all right. Yeah, I've, I've um, got to just turn, turn like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that 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 was uh, that was definitely a nice. Uh, yeah, it was, it's a good mm. little thing. Obviously, it's got to be a good quality whiskey. Um, but um, well, I, yeah. I mean, you say that but you're not going to put Laphroaig in it, are you? Well, no, but I mean, you're not putting Jack Daniels in it. Well, because yeah. it's a bourbon. Um, no, but, well, it's, it's a Tennessee whiskey for being. Well, yeah, yeah. Sorry, we'll have that conversation again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess you could put. I mean, we used to. We we would often have um, golden syrup. Yes. Yeah, orange. yeah. Tate Lyles. Or do oh, it just be sugar at times? Yeah, just be plain sugar sometimes. Just yeah. depending on what we had. Um, did you ever have enough sugar on it that it would form the crust when it melted? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was good. It's like yeah. a Scotch equivalent of um, a creme brulee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you, but, you've, but you've not actually used a, a blowtorch on it at all. You've just let the heat from the from it like form that, and you just kind of oh, yeah, yeah. yeah you, the porridge is like lava. lava. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But your parents have given you porridge because it's the healthy option, and said put a little bit of sugar on it, and then left you to your own devices. And you, it's just ridiculous, really. 
Yeah. I used, to have, I used to have sugar sandwiches and condensed milk sandwiches. It's like a healthy option, wasn't it? Oh, of... no. Andy, have you ever had milk jelly? Yes. Very, very, blamange? very long time ago. So what was that, Jamie? Is that not just blancmange? No. No, no, no. It's a very different thing. I can't remember if it's condensed milk or not. It, it's, it's something like condensed milk or one of the others, but it's a mixture in there. So obviously it's no longer that kind of semi-see-through gelatin but it looks like blanc, but it isn't it is a very different consistency yeah. and it and it's super sweet because it's got um it's either it's, it's i think it's condensed milk in it i'm pretty sure it is condensed or evaporated to be one of the two yeah one, yeah, of, the one of them and it's uh yeah absolutely delicious but this this will just lead on to one of the other things see these are sparking off the things i wanted to talk about but i forgot when i you know on the drive <laughs> um i'm i'm um a little bit of a believer in um, hereditary skill sets. And just to explain okay. what I mean by that, on my dad's side of the family, um, one of the um, sort of family trades was bakers. And there was, I think it was four generations of bakers before guy then i think he had two daughters and they got married and it was at the time where you know you, they didn't then necessarily do anything other than be a housewife um which is a shame um but my dad through necessity from having four kids three of whom were boys would get to a point where he was baking 10 loaves of bread a week because we were just consuming it, you know, freshly baked bread, marvellous, half a loaf each, still warm, run off upstairs, um, because the crust is just right, and it doesn't keep for very long either. Yeah. Um, and it was always wholemeal as well. And I can remember, this is definitely a core memory, I can remember being a toddler and my dad grabbing me and sitting me on the countertop while he's kneading the bread, getting absolutely knackered because he's, you know, it's just a big batch of dough that he's, he's having to like portion up. Um, and he would get knackered. So he would, he would pause and he would poke little holes and draw a smiley face in this dough and then get us to beat it up as kids, which was like, cause you're only like, you know, yay mm. high. It's not really doing an awful lot to it, but made you feel good about it. And dough is a, a lovely, delightful thing to play with in that regard as well. And, um, I didn't really think about it at all until long after we'd married, you know, and I'd, I'd baked bread at school and whatever, and I knew about kneading it properly because of watching my dad and everything. And everyone else has kind of went that. And then mine was like four times the size and all that kind of thing, just because I'd had a brief bit of experience with it. But I definitely am much more drawn if we're talking about cooking and anything there, I'm more drawn towards baking. Mm. I am, I'm much happier baking bread or or making a cake or that you know the kind of batch working kind of flapjacks that kind of stuff brownies all of the kind of the i say all of including brownies not sure how old or traditional that recipe necessarily is but <laughs> the, the kind of stuff that you would expect to see in a corner shop bakery that was independently owned for many years as opposed to um wandering into greg's and just seeing whatever stuff's been kind of adapted from around the world now I'm not I'm not suggesting that I've got some inherent knowledge at the back of my mind or anything, but I definitely feel a lot more comfortable kneading dough and playing with that than I do being put in front of um, you know creating a roast dinner 
Yeah. Ro roasting a chicken, it, I, I, it was on my bucket list of something to do was to actually roast chicken, and I only did it about two years ago. You know, I'm, I'm 38 now, and I was 36 when I roasted my first chicken. It's not like I've never eaten roast chicken before. I've eaten many of them. I've been in the houses when they've been cooked. But there's been so much background noise about, oh, you've got to make sure it's cooked and this, that, blah, 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 blah. So it's, I've always put it off and I've put barriers in the way. Mm. However, phyllo pastry, short crust pastry, profiteroles, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, let's just get stuck in. Let's go for it. Which technically are far more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it doesn't. I don't. It doesn't hold fear for me, and I. I don't know whether it's. It's possibly because you know, if if you cook chicken wrong, you can get seriously ill. Whereas if, if you cook pastry wrong, it's either hard or it's kind of a bit underdone, and uh, you know, you you can get away with it. Um, but I I do feel that there's there are there are some things that if you you kind of you look to your past, um, I think that's definitely there is, there is something there. The nature versus nurture question, though, because yeah, I mean, it, for me, um, I, I grew up being involved with baking with my mum, but yeah. involved less with the cooking. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm more drawn, I, I can cook very well, but I haven't baked for years, but I'm more drawn to want to get back into baking. Yeah. And specifically, you mentioned the the. Um, I've only been looking at this recently with a view to getting back into baking myself. For a, uh, a very specific core memory from a, being a kid, and there's a, a little delicatessen on the corner of our street, and they would often do this thing called a Russian slice. Okay. That was basically uh, a way of reselling stuff that hadn't been sold before. <laughs> so yeah. it, it, there's there's lots of theories on the origin of it but it was um it's made from leftover cake so the stuff that's gone stale and things and it's basically like a, a, a very thin sort of dense sponge for the base you know probably quarter of an inch and then the the main kind of truffly gooey center is was just like leftover cake churned up with just... rum and apricot jam <laughs> kind of just mashed into this like Dense, like a tart scent. kind of thing. Oh well, no, I suppose because well, it's, it's not a pastry base; it's a cake base. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like a cake, but it's it's, it's like the same kind of uh, form factor as like a vanilla slice. So it's like oh, okay, yeah, I've got thin you. bottom, yeah, yeah. big stodgy center, thin Which, top with an iced lid. I have to say, vanilla slice has got to be in my top three of patisserie-based things, yeah. and. I taught myself how to eat one without dropping any of the vanilla inside and without taking it to bits. This is exactly what I was just about to say. It is a delightful thing, yeah. horrific to eat with a beard. No, it's not. It's it's fine. It's okay. You can you can you can and I and I do bite do, top do you, to bottom. I, I was do bite say, do you, top do you, bottom, so it squashes it all out. But the, the trick is to, to eat it and then quickly bite the bits on the side yeah. before they go anywhere, and then you have to work your way down. It, it, it's all about creating the wedge, isn't it? So yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You have to have that wedge to kind of support it. <laughs> it gets all over your fingers, but that's fine. That's not a problem. But yeah, it, I, I, um... I tend to go for the. I, I mean, I have again haven't had one for years because can't find gluten free ones. Yeah. Um, I used to go for kind of yeah, take the lid off. Yeah. Eat the top. Then you've just got yeah this inch and a half of pastry 
on top of a pastry base. But the best bit is the, is the vanilla custard in it for me. But, but that, then I love that, cold yeah. custard. So, you know, yeah, that, that was what drew me to. I mean, I love uh, custard tarts. I've, I've made custard yes. tarts a number of times that I, I could quite happily. This is the thing. This is the, the reason why I'm grateful that Janie is gluten free and I'm, I'm grateful that I don't have time and I'm tired because I would be huge because I would be more than happy to bake a tray of custard tarts, wait until they're cool, and then put them all in a bowl and put ice cream or custard on top of them and eat the lot. <laughs> I, I, I just, I have very little self-control when it comes to this kind of thing. But I mean, I, yeah. I got really into, when I, um, one of the jobs I got put on garden leave for six weeks, because basically they were firing us, but we had to run our contract out and they couldn't officially fire us, but they'd run out of work. So on garden leave for six weeks, and after spending two weeks moping about the fact that my my job I trained my career that I trained for was no longer going to happen, because uh, uh, for those of you who don't know me and haven't gotten on quite yet, I'm quite melodramatic. Um, <laughs> I, I'm moping for two weeks and playing a lot of Call of Duty. Uh, Janie basically came home at one point and said, "Look, can you at least hoover the room, like as a bare minimum? You're home all day. Like, could you just do something?" Um, but there's no way in hell I was going to hoover the room. So I, I went to baking instead, which was not required and not necessary at all. Um, but I, I did, I, I went, I got into like, well, how can I, right, we've got this leftover food here. I don't really want to make it this way again. So pastry always makes things better. So let's, let's make a little fold up parcel and do a thing and do whatever. And I can remember the look on Janie's face when I sort of took this tray out of the oven. I said, right, I've made dinner. And she's looking at what's that? So well, it, it's it's like it's basically leftovers in pastries. Like, Where did you get pastry from? I said, well, I made it. Mm. What do you mean you made pastry? Because I'd never cooked for her at all. Like honestly, when like, we were very much at this thing where I I just didn't, you know, it didn't enter my mind that anything that I could cook or whatever would potentially impress someone. You know, it was just I cooked mm. when I was hungry or when I felt like it. There was no kind of trick or anything like that behind it. Um, but I then went down the patisserie rabbit hole, uh, and got stopped by Janie when she basically said, look, first of all, you need to find a job. <laughs> Garden leaves yeah. not going to last forever. Second of all, we've both put on weight and it's only been two weeks. Um, <laughs> so you should probably stop with all of the butter and the sugar and all of all of this stuff and you know um being the the rational minded person that i am i threw my toys out of the pram and didn't bake for four years um but it, it's um the right approach it's definitely yeah. an area that i i like the challenge particularly as someone who suffers from hot hands and then you're trying to make pastry um it, it is it's definitely a challenge but i i don't know there was just something about it and i i got very into sort of watching old michelle rue videos and like michelle rue senior who unfortunately died last year i think it was mm -hmm. um and bought the the rue brothers patisserie book and then looking at sponge sugar work and you know all of the like you, you're jumping from like can i make a flapjack or a piece of bread to now all of a sudden you're looking at can i do a croc on bouche that's like four foot high and how would you structure that and glue it together with sugar and everything else and I, that's still on my bucket list to do is to make one and Janie said to me like yeah but what for like as in who's this going to be for once you've done it like a four foot tall croc on bouche when you work it out is something like 300 profiteroles or more and that's all got to be covered in chocolate and spun sugar work and I mean with the greatest will in the world I'm not going to eat all of that 
it's not going to be gluten free, so she can't really eat all of that. Damn, you <laughs> can make gluten free shoe pastry is possible. Uh, yeah, shoe pastry is kind of my nemesis of the pastries. So uh, we'll, we'll. Sorry, what are you going to say, Jamie? Make a central. All no, of your I'm friends will be there. No. No, make no. make it at make a central. That could no, be the, the definitely not. No. Take ages. The, Make with makers stand just you in the corner the, building uh, that. The, the, uh, the UK maker camp, which I'm sure will happen at some point. I'll make it there. Yeah. Once someone's organised one of those. <laughs> so I'm I'm wondering, you've just vanilla slice. Uh, top three. What else is in your top three for patisserie? Uh, oh, sorry, patisserie or cakes from a bakery, which I know is similar but not quite the same oh. thing. Yeah, because if we're talking traditional corner shop bakery, that's we'll, so we'll take we'll take top three. Top, yeah, it's it's your local bakery that does a bit of patisserie, bit of cake yeah. stuff. Top three. If if it's that, then the number one spot shocks people, but it is a a plain, well made flapjack. Okay. Okay, that's but it, it's yep. got it's got to be at least ten mil thick. Oat base, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, just to clarify for our American listeners, we're we're talking about the thing that Al refers to, which is an oat-based cake, nothing that is fried in a pan like a pancake. Okay, so this is a tray-baked good that would normally. But the way my mum and dad used to serve it, they used to actually cook it in a in a round tin, and then it would be mm -hmm. cut into slices, almost like a piece of pizza. But yeah, it was, it's yeah. a centimeter thick. The outside. Yep edge is really nice and kind of crunchy and hard because it's it's um crystallized a little bit and it's a little mm -hmm. bit softer towards the middle but you can pick the whole piece up and it's not going to fall to bits if it's been made properly um a little bit gooey can sometimes be nice so that that's that's definitely top of there uh vanilla slices in there probably at number two and and the, the third one to be honest with you is probably a custard tart because i am a tart mm. for custard um so you've got to have two custard items in there um <laughs> It, it, it's going to be but if we're talking patisserie as in you know you're going down that route of high end you're playing with it past the point of it being just functional um profiteroles going to be in there like and, and i'm when i say that i mean like the bite-sized ones which you tend to eat a bunch of it's more of a dessert possibly yeah. but not um not the massive not one, one, of the cricket, not one of the big cricket balls no not one of the, not the cricket ball sort of size ones i'm not so fond of that it's little bites of one. The, the best ones i ever actually had it's sad to say were i don't think they make them anymore they they were it was a pre-boxed thing in sainsbury's from the frozen goods aisle and they were called a profiterole bite and the entire thing was covered in chocolate so it's still oh. shoe pastry on the inside. So it was it was okay. cream shoe pastry, but the whole of the outside had been covered in chocolate. So you would defrost them enough that the cream on the inside was 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 gooey, but the outside still had the crunch, and then you had the hit of the pastry as well. But I, I don't. I literally this was something I remember from when I was about late teens, early twenties. My dad bought them a few times, and they were only found in Sainsbury's. Yeah, you know, they were Sainsbury's own product. And I've not seen them any other time I've gone in. Every time I've ever been in one since, which is not often because it's Tesco's everywhere now, I've looked for them and I've not found them. So Tesco's yeah. do a nice gluten-free profiterole. Yeah. Really cheap as well. About a pound, pound fifteen for yeah. fifteen of them. But it's a it's a chocolate sauce in a packet. It's fr in the yeah. frozen yeah. chocolate sauce in the packet. And not there, there's a risk of them being soggy. It's it's quite it's quite tricky. No, no, they're, they're as long as you don't leave them too long on the defrost, 
Yeah. They're they're not they're not it's not proper chew pastry. You haven't quite got that crispness. But for something that's gluten free, <laughs> yeah, they are they're, yeah. they're nice for gluten free. But if we're talking, so if we're talking patisserie, then then a, a profiteroles there, if you can technically class it in there, as I say, if it's the smaller ones. Um, my favourite one currently is a lemon curd cruffin, <laughs> which is, it's a croissant dough in a muffin shape. And there's there's a place called the Pastry Bench, which is independent to us and is, is, um, is owned by a lovely lady who her and her husband both used to be Michelin star chefs and she particularly did patisserie and in her words they moved to Somerset and quit being chefs so that they could see daylight um <laughs> and because they've got a small child so he's still a chef but um she I think she taught I don't know if she still teaches but she certainly taught home economics or whatever you want to call it in a school and decided to sort of do a bit of patisserie on the side to keep her skills in. And then her friends were like, you need to sell these. And she's now opened, I think she opens like two or three days a week, an actual place. Um, and you can go and buy it. But it, this thing is, is delicious. So it's got, it's, you've got the, um, the pastry outside, which is made out of the um, croissant style, but enriched pastry. It's got a really nice lemon curd center. And then on top of it is a freshly made, not mass bought and stuck on the top, but made by her piece of meringue. And not not over the top either, literally just like a, a single dollop, almost like Hershey's Kiss kind of thing of meringue on the top of it. Um, and you have to eat it quickly because the meringue will just start to melt. Mm, you know, it's, nice. it's, it's properly made kind of thing. So that's definitely got to be up there. Um, and then to be honest with you, again, if we're talking sort of high-end patisserie, I mean that's going to be a struggle now to get to the third one because uh, I I am very traditional. I, although I'll, I'll happily explore different things, I need to be guided. But it would probably be, and it's a bit of a cop out, but a really nice eclair. Well, that's which just is, a long profiterole. Which is a long profiterole. <laughs> which is a long profiterole. But a split eclair with a little little bit of strawberry jam type thing on there. You know, it's like it's an yeah, like an eclair dog. Yeah, literally like that. So difficult not to, but it, and I know it's a cop out, but I can't. I'm I'm very much a creature of habit, unless mm. I'm I'm mentally in the state of being guided by someone. Like if if any of you guys or Al or someone said, "Hey, I'm going to take you to my local patisserie, and you have to try X, Y, and Z." That's fine. Mm. Let's go, and I'll try it, and I can inform yeah. my opinion. But if I'm passing a patisserie. I'm going to go and buy one of my favourites because yeah. I know that's what I like, and I yeah, loaded memories and things as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jimmy, top three for you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that this is a little bit like um, what was the John Cusack film with his with his top ten lists? High Fidelity. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's quite <laughs> difficult because. We've got the, the Butterworth Bakery um, near us that, that is, they've just got so many delicious things. Um, I, I honestly probably couldn't pick anything because it, it, I just, I, I, it depends on the day, you know, there'll, uh, there'll, be, a, <laughs> there'll be a top three at completely different, you know, three or four times a week of, of the, okay. The okay. Let's let's do it differently. Your your top one 
for winter and your top one for summer? Mm. So what's, what's, what's okay. one in the winter that would be your, your heart warming? I, I need this to make myself feel better about the, the, the cold and the, the rain and the bad weather. And what's your one for in the summer of it's a beautiful summery day and this will just kind of help enrich it as a. So it's summer to me, you like strawberry tart, that kind of, mm. that's, yeah. that's always something good. See, I remember making those at home with my mum. haven't made them since. And she used to do lemon, lemon curd tarts and strawberry tarts. Delicious. Mm. Again, the whole tray would be gone within five minutes. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, winter you, for me, it's, you know, cinnamon buns or, um, those kind of winter spiced type. Yeah. That's just that that's the gingerbread man. Is, yeah. I mean there's yeah. um the Butterwick Bakery near me, they they do a um I forget the bloody call it now, but it's it it's made of, of donut dough and they chop it all up into like sort of bite-sized chunks, but then mash it all back together and then fry that as one lump. So it's all kind of gnarled and you can you can pick it apart. Yeah. Because it's like kind of semi-glued together chunks of donut bites, essentially. Um, but it's it's cinnamon sugar and then glazed. Um, I've had a I've had a couple of those since they opened, and they're, they're absolutely gorgeous. Um, but I think I you know I'm more biscuits in you know, a Viennese whirls or something like that would be that's the a, oh, a separate conversation so, yeah exactly so that's <laughs> that's my sort of more more my choice or like proper cake cake rather than patisserie type stuff there's a a shop that's just opened in the the town nearest us they they were online only and they've now opened as a shop called the somerset cheesecakery and that is literally Ooh. all they do is cheesecake and every single day since they've opened, they've been sold out within three hours. Mm, nice. Because they only sell whole cheesecake or small individual ones. You can't just buy a slice of cheesecake. So they've yeah. obviously realized that this is great, but they're paying rent for a lot more time than they're using. So what they've now yeah. introduced is you can go in and you can you can do a buy a do-it-yourself cheesecake, which is basically what what style of base do you prefer? Right, we'll chuck some of that in a pot and it won't be solid, it'll be like it, it will be solid, but in broken up in chunks, if you see what I mean. Right, what middle section would you like? Oh, well, I like just plain vanilla or, or whatever it is, or chocolate. That will go in, and then what topping will you like? And it, and it just goes in, in like a, a um, disposable cup and you get a spoon. So it's nice. in effect like a do-it-yourself ice cream parlour, but with cheesecake bits. Oh, so okay, that yeah, way, yeah. And that way they've just got a tub of this, a tub of this, and a tub of this. They're not having to pay someone to assemble it and to – you know make it yeah, elegant yeah. or anything you, yeah. you you've and you've kind of got then that the lower end regular buy-in so the, the is... one of the food vendors at shambhala festival um is called the crumble shack and they have a very very similar kind of uh mo for theirs so you, you know you you've got your, your selection of the fruit your selection of the the crumble toppings you know whether you want like a gingerbread crumble or standard which, which should always have oats in it agreed um and then your selection of uh custard or ice cream i think the two options and it's the same sort of thing if you get the cup and you you do they your... charge you extra to have both custard and ice cream with the crumble 
I don't know. I would I would imagine they they might do. Well, I'm I'm what I'm really meaning is, do they give you the choice of having both? Because I mean, I, why wouldn't why wouldn't you have ice cream and custard with a crumble? I mean, this is just you've got the hot and the cold, you've got all of the textures and 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 the temperatures <laughs> playing all in the same thing. I think the problem is, is just me again. <laughs> Well, I, I think... Or is it a very it, small pot? <laughs> uh, well, that is definitely the thing. It is it, it is a small pot to begin with. Mm. But I think the... You know, you would tend to view custard as just part of the component of a crumble. And then the mm. ice cream is like the ice cream on top. Whereas most people would, would generally pick custard or ice cream as a finisher. Whereas I think for you that custard is just a staple of all desserts. Oh, this is the and funny then ice cream. Oh, it's an I option. Know. No, no, no. But this is the funny thing, right? So I know within our our, our our close circle of maker friends and public announcement, just because there is a group of people within the maker community who know each other better than they do other makers, it's not a clique or a clique or a, you know exclusive. It's just that we talk to each other more often than we've spoken to you. You're welcome at any point in time. We just need to communicate. PSA finished. Um, but within that group of people, whilst I do really like custards, my nemesis has always been ice cream. Interesting. And my, my, like when I say my nemesis, to the extent that Janie and I went on a holiday to Norfolk, we had a roast meal that was a delicious roast meal um, on an autumn day. And I was full, like to the point of almost feeling nauseous, full of roast meal. We got in the car. We drove to the next place we were going to, which was five minutes down the road. Got out. It's seafront. Walking along, I spotted a Wool's ice cream sign and just said to Jay, I'm just going to go get an ice cream. Said, but you're full. You've just told me you're full and you're feeling sick. Yes, but there's ice cream. Yeah. Um, and went and got a Mr. Whippy. And it had to be a large because what's the point if you're not getting a large? Yeah. I'm not bothered about a flake. If they've got one, great. If they haven't, I'm not worried. Sometimes I won't bother because it's more money. It's it's the chemically made Mr. Whippy ice cream, just plain vanilla, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> fine with the, the, the stale cone. That's the mm -hmm. evocative memory kind of thing. And that is why I say it's my nemesis. That was the day I realized when, if I'm already clearly full and not able to eat anything more, but I will make sure there's room for ice cream. Well, it goes into the, the dessert stomach. Yeah, it, it fits in the gaps and yeah. the dessert stomach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I, I Mr. Whippy is so light and full of air. Oh, I I looked at buying secondhand Mr. Whippy machines for the workshop. So, Matt Gray, who's hopefully a future guest on the podcast, um, he no longer has it now, but he bought himself an ice cream machine. Right. And did a YouTube series of basically Willet ice cream. Okay. So, I mean, it, we, Andy, you'll have to find the link and put it in the playlist and the thing. But it is amazing. And we're, we're talking, you know, like uh, obvious starters, things like milkshakes and yeah. stuff that would make sense to turn into ice cream. And then things like condiments. So, Ketchup, brown sauce, chili sauce. Does it turn into ice cream? Uh, baked beans. Can you turn in? in can you run Especially them through the ice cream yeah. machine and Mr. Whippy baked bean ice cream? 
yeah you know uh he just it's just a delightful series um we had a chat with him at makers and he's saying that that is the you know despite all the other things he's done on youtube and in in the world in general his ice cream series is the one thing that people keep coming up to him about and demanding more of i can believe that i mean the reason why i haven't bought one is because if you're looking for a, a proper industrial strength one that it's going to last and all the rest of it even second hand they were about three grand um and even i'm a bit like it's possibly possibly slightly too much to invest on a machine that let's be realistic i might occasionally like an ice cream you know like in the mm. workshop i'll probably have one every day at lunchtime but i'm not going to empty out that whole tank in a day you know that, that's like even a week is going to be pushing it so realistically that that's you know you're going to have a machine that if you had a party you might fill up and turn yeah, on yeah so in order to get one we're talking about this has got to be a you know someone's gifting it or it's it's buy to repair and get rid of kind of thing on a facebook marketplace or something like that cool because um, ed china did um he did a, an electric ice cream van conversion um for a guinness world record he wanted to get the fastest ice cream van so he bought an ice cream or got an ice cream van and then did the full conversion to electric and the full conversion to electric included converting the ice cream maker to run on electric rather than running on the the standard diesel engine that they ice cream vans do did that make it faster well, it was a massive logistical challenge because he, he had to completely redesign the whole internals of the ice cream machine. Yeah. Um, because of the way it's all powered and stuff. So he, he's now got this this whole product of actually electrifying ice cream buns uh, or ice cream <laughs> machines <laughs> purely from doing this one project to try and get a, a land speed record. Um, but he was in his YouTube series about it. He was talking, I think it's a, like a minimum go of about two liters, I think. That's what you'd have to do. So you'd have to you'd have to reach a point of either having uh, use of or just learning to consume or craft uh, two liters worth of Mr. Whippy on a cone. See, my brain immediately you told when you told me you had to convert it from diesel to electric went the other way, and now I want a steam driven Mr. Whippy making machine. <laughs> Line shaft in the workshop. <laughs> but can you but no 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 but can you imagine being the guy who turns up to uh, a steampunk <laughs> convention who has got the steam driven mr whippy machine there's got to be a guy out there who's already done it i mean i cannot be the only person with a beard who loves ice cream who is not thought you know and, and got a little um stop and go motor generator type thing that keeps it cool and, and does the whole works mm. And you could, you could, I mean, you could make it so it was, I mean, just if you're going steampunk, you can make the whole carry. You can end up cycling in on the old school, like ice cream bike, but you, you've got the, the wagon behind it. You know, the whole, the whole thing is, is a YouTube series on its own. Uh, you know, you're going to have to spend the whole time working on it in sort of rolled up shirt sleeve with no collar on and a waistcoat and kind of your, you know, your, your funny binoculars and your, your hat and all the rest of it. So, Andy, here's the physics side of this that for you for your input onto the I'll, thing. I'll just, just to say, a quick Google suggests that it, it has been done. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. Could you use something like a, a TC? 
with just a bunch of friends come round. We'll, we'll stick a marquee in the back garden. I'm fortunate enough that you could have a small marquee in the back garden, sort of nine by three meters, and just stick a table in the middle. No one brings anything. We cook for them. They just sit down and chat with each other around a good family meal. And I mean, if you if you want the kind of concept that I was looking for in my head, we're talking Goodfellas without the stabbings, basically. It was that, you know, you, you want the, the Italian family meal where all the food's on the table and people are passing stuff backwards and forwards and there's the in-jokes and there's a little bit of, you know, picking on Rasmus and all that kind of stuff's going on, but it's all good-natured and you, you're there together and just enjoying a meal and enjoying each other's company. And then in our situation afterwards, you know, the fire pit was lit and you can toast marshmallows over it or just or whatever. And so much of our kind of our friendships and the people we speak to, yes, they're creative people. And yes, they um, they suffer from insecurities, as we all do. And like, you know, am I good enough? Is this good enough? Should I price that? Oh, no, I'm, I can't price it that much because it's not worth that. You know, all of those conversations that we have. But we're all there for each other. We're all friends with each other. And we all talk about food so much because it is a big part of our lives. Yeah. So if there was a way that we could have that kind of, I mean, let's be realistic. If, if you're going to do it year on year, you're not going to build like a shepherd hut or a mobile home truck worth of making food kind of thing within a year, unless you're owl and you don't sleep. But, <laughs> you know, there, there could at least be this kind of event where there are some vague rules around it where, you know, you don't just say, oh, but we'll, we'll also invite a couple of people who happen to have a pizza wagon just in case. You know, you want to make sure that it is this thing that it is inspiring to people and say, look, everyone's going to come together and, and there's going to be food there. That's the purpose of this. Um, but it's also to showcase your talent and to come up with crazy things like a complete steampunk driven Mr. Whippy creation machine that pours an IPA flavored Mr. Whippy. <laughs> you know, like why, why wouldn't you want to see that and then have people go right and this is how I made it and they, they can lift back the cover and they, they can have the conversation and oh, you know, Bernie Solo machined me a load of parts for this and shipped them over from the States because he's the only one who's still got the technological know-how to do a Whitworth thread that's whatever it is, you know, or or whatever the situation. And then, you know, and, and you can ha have that right next door to just an old food truck that Al's managed to find and he does the whole meat nights things where he, he hands you a sword with meat on it and that's it and he's dressed in armour. You know, it's the possibilities behind this are just amazing. And I know I'm, I'm going on for a long period of time. Um, I, I, I'm sold. Yeah. yeah but this, is, this is what I mean when I'm talking about if I'm passionate about something, then I will, you know, I will invest in it. OK, so this is, I've, I've put this out there now as the idea, but I'm not organizing it. <laughs> <laughs> Such a cop out. Because, it's, it's not a cop-out. It's not a cop-out. You it, you know, you need a field where people are willing to have vehicles drive onto it to serve food and have loud music for a weekend. And that, that's all it is, really. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, getting, it's getting commitment from people who are already very busy to do a large project like that. I mean, you've only got to look at people like Jimmy DiResto, and this is where I'm now putting boundaries in the way of this happening. This is... Uh, <laughs> You know, this is where you'll get Jimmy DeResta and he, he, you know, he made the, the trailer for whatever alcohol it was for display. And then they asked mm. him to make 10 more. But a bird, you know? 
And how long did that take him? Hmm. And he kept putting it off. And this is Jimmy we're talking about. And this is, you know, this is kind of his day job, if you like. And he just kept putting off building a structure that could house a certain amount of weight of, of glass and liquid. And I don't I don't think the original one even was meant to be towed around. So it didn't even have working it wheels. Yeah. So it's it's you know, it's not a, a straightforward task, particularly not if you're crazy like me and you want a steampunk ice cream maker. <laughs> You know, this this is this is scrap heap challenge, but with a purpose and a, and a longer timeline. <laughs> it is though, isn't it? You, you're, yeah, taking, yeah, yeah. you're taking the vehicle; it's got a certain purpose. Oh, mm. cheers, Dave! All Dave's my like friends, everyone yeah. in the chat gone. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a great and, idea. Hmm. Yeah. But now the problem is, is finding people who can form the other C word, which is committee, which is where everyone loses interest, <laughs> to actually then get it organised and do all of the admin and the paperwork and, and corral the cats of people to actually commit and make mm. sure that they do do the correct paperwork. I mean, Andy, you're, you're on the committee for the, you know, Fools of Tools Treasure Trade. Yeah, it's just... It's yeah, it, it is. The problem. I mean, yeah, something like Cal. I mean, a few people have looked at kind of yeah the idea of a UK make account. Yeah, and the, the single biggest problem is finding a suitable location. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not too far in one direction than another. Yeah. That is has the facilities that are needed. It's close enough to accommodation or can accommodate tents or camping and and all yeah. those kind of sort of things. Yeah, and then finding enough people to organise it and it, and. If you find some way, you've then got to get somebody who's actually almost prepared to not put money on the line, but to kind of organise it to get the money on the line. I I think I think depending on what it because this we you and I and others have had this conversation. If we yeah. set aside the kind of the, the food truck concept of it, the the problem with formulating a maker camp isn't necessarily finding a location. It's finding a location that will allow you to do the things you want to do at a maker camp. Yeah. Mm. The biggest one of which is blacksmithing, because anytime you're introducing fire and, you know, areas of ground that are likely to be burnt or sparks or metal debris and all that kind of stuff, most domestic campsites are going to get nervous. Um, scout campsites tend to be a lot more forgiving but you've got to have someone who's in the scouts who's able to get you an in into sort of doing that. And then scout campsites, understandably, tend to be a lot more strict on whether or not you're allowed alcohol on site, which doesn't mm. personally bother me. But if you're having a weekend away with people, um, you, you're going to want, you know, some form of a, a cider or a, a beer or whatever else. Um, what, and you know, the, notoriously, it, scout campsites have very limited facilities in terms of things like showers. Yes. Which some yeah. people, you know, I yeah. mean, my wife would never go somewhere that didn't have. I'm not a fan of camping. I will be yeah. the first to admit I'm not a fan of camping. I hate sleeping in a tent. It, it, if I don't mind sleeping in a wooden shack with a bed, that's fine. Um, I'm also very much, I need to have a toilet that I don't have to hold my breath when I go into it. Yeah. I, you know, that kind of thing. There is a level and yeah. I'm very much more of the, I'm too old for that shit kind of level. Um, even though that's psychological yeah, that more than physical, yeah. 
Um, so yeah, there is that to it. But I mean, you it, so you you've got to have a location that will allow certain things. Again, like you said, Andy, I think not necessarily so much centralized as much as it would be close to easy to get to transit places. Yeah. So, you know, it, I've had people say to me, well, there's a campsite around the back of Yandles. There is a campsite around the back of Yandles, but there isn't an airport nearby. The nearest train station is in Yeovil, which is half an hour drive away, and that's not a cheap taxi ride. Or you've mm. got to have people willing to ferry people backwards and forwards for a couple of days and then pay for their fuel. Um, there's not a train, you know, that's the same, that's the same with the train station. That's the same with, um, there, there are some bus stops from London, but there's only two a day and they're three and a half hours on the coach. And, you know, it, it's not easy to get to unless yeah. you're driving. Um, and even then, if you're driving from Scotland, that's, you know, 10 and a half hours, you don't really want to be doing that. So it's, it's more about like somewhere that's close to somewhere where people from Europe and other, other countries could could get to it relatively simply um and it's just there's, there's just a lot of groundwork that needs to be done i've i've sort of put feelers out to one or two people with intent for sort of having another go at it myself um and quite sensibly uh dr multi actually said that you need you know in order to sort of know whether or not people can commit is this going to be a, I want to do this for five years and then I think it will probably have burnt out and that's it? Or is this a, you're planning on doing this for 50 years and you've got to factor in right from the beginning that this is going to grow, in which case don't pick a campsite that's got a maximum of 50 people on it on the first year. If your yeah. test year was going to be 50 people and then your second year, you're going to have to relocate the whole thing and do the whole process all over again. Yeah. Mm which is very sensible and not something that I'd considered um, because, you know, but, but realistically you need about five people because the yeah. three people that's still just too much. And particularly if one of them isn't able to pull their weight as much, whereas if you've got about five people uh, who are all good at organizing things to different levels and degrees and have got different things they can bring to the table, um, then yeah, it could get done. And I think the money element of it, I would look at it as a, hey, you do a pre-booking. And if we hit 30 people at this price, then it's paid for it. If we haven't hit them by this time, date and time, then everyone gets their money back. And then that way, there's no kind of upfront cost unless there's an initial deposit. So there are ways around a lot of these things, but all of us have got full-time jobs and possibly secondary jobs as well and families and all of this kind of stuff and it's yeah, a case of, you know i'm definitely thinking we need we need to probably speak to someone like canby events or in bristol yeah, yeah. There, there are guys who've been doing this for many years who you know we probably have all got friends within certain companies like event company i mean neil who was on earlier he, his his day job he's yeah, done a lot absolutely. of management with events and events mm -hmm. planning but the next question after that is what do you want the event to be? Do you want to meet up for two days and just get drunk in a field and hang out and chat? That's not what I would want to do, but that's what some people in the community want to do, which is fine. But it's not what I would want to organise, so I wouldn't want to be on the committee for that. Me personally, I would rather meet up and say, hey, look, you know, we're at X whatever it is campsite. They need picnic benches. Mm. So we're here for three days we're going to make 10 picnic benches. 
and we and I, I would want a little bit more structure around it so you kind of got that period of time during the day where there are some people making picnic benches there are other people having a go at blacksmithing or sewing or whatever the hell it is we were able to get organized on site but my and again this is going back to a personal thing for me i would want the one rule to be that everyone eats together one meal in the evening together mm. and that you push tables together and you have like three long tables and you, you, you're not forcing people to socialize because, you know, I appreciate that as is inherent nature of all creative people, not everyone wants to socialize, but you're, you're trying to create and show people that this is a community together. So you've, you know, you've spent some time together. You, there'd have to be a designated place where if people just needed to be quiet for an hour, they could go off and do that. Not a problem at all. But, you know, you work together to achieve a common goal that is being creative i.e. making picnic benches in this example but you don't have to be that you know that isn't like the be all and end all for everyone not everyone has to be get involved in doing that but there is something that as a result that you walk away from the campsite and you've, you've left it clean you've left it tidy and you've left them something behind which they can then use and they've not had to pay for yeah with the hope being that the following year you can then go hey you know can we negotiate the price again you know and you know you could it, it could be we can forge a load of fire pits or or whatever the case may be but i i just i prefer the concept of we're a creative community and we're proving that fact you know and people get to learn the skills at the same time of of making something together that is that is left behind and it leaves a good taste in our mouths and the same with the people who own the site and yeah you can still have a good time you can still have a drink in the evening and all that kind of good stuff but we've we've done something together i mean i in my mind i take it one step further and after you've had your evening family meal you know you you've got a big marquee for that or whatever because it's britain and it's going to rain um <laughs> and you can you can then do stupid things in the evening which doesn't have to last the whole evening it could just be for an hour afterwards but you know one night you can you can have a, a, a trivia quiz are you honestly going to tell me that that 50 of us together aren't going to love a quiz that's going to be based around like star wars harry potter lord of the rings and you know all of that kind of nonsense and it's basically a pub quiz but there's mm. you know and you know some of the guys at the forge can knock up a stupid trophy during the day that you know little things like that that we all as friends meet to do to socialize with one or another normally when we get the time but you condense it down into it into a couple of days all of the ideas are there it just needs to be you know actually some momentum and groups of people to, to just get on and do it and so you what you're know, saying is, is you need you need a, a financier and a no, few project managers no, it's 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 not even necessarily a money person it, it's it's some project no, but i mean to, to just be behind you so you can go and do your idea and just you have the people to action that for you yes and no i mean in an ideal world this would be the full-time job wouldn't yeah. it <laughs> you know in an ideal world you you this is an event that happens once a year um and you're you know you're you're able to kind of do, do your, your creative thing like three days a week and then two days a week you're, you're putting in towards getting this stuff done or it's so much of it let's be honest after the first year would be email and, and um, phone call and Duncan the spreadsheet master um, we, you know we need something we need something like that yeah you know, the the camp up in New York State yeah yeah we, we need a, a facility like that where they've got yeah. the kind of 
uh, yeah, cabins and cabins and camping, yeah. quality and camping, and yeah. the willingness to kind of have people set fire to a twenty-five foot, thirty-foot exactly, yeah, T-Rex, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 all of that, all of that kind of good stuff. And I'm and I'm sure there are places there in the UK. It, it's just you know, I've, I mean, I've I've spent it. quite a bit of time looking for places. Yeah, and I've found some places. I mean, like you know find places that tick one or two of the boxes yep. is not difficult. Finding places that tick enough of the boxes that you're going to get people, because yeah, a lot of people... And, yeah, and are within I, a good budget. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that too. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I've, I have found places that will tick yeah, a couple of the boxes and are not stupidly priced. But finding them that tick enough of the boxes that it would make... that of the things like you we've talked about there kind of having a variety of accommodation to suit people who are willing to camp or those who mm. need yeah a proper bed uh and those that kind of yeah are happy to have yeah portaloos that stink and those people that yeah no way is that happening yeah i want my own toilet and having the facilities to set fire to stuff and to pound metal and not too close to somewhere else yeah it's there, there, there probably is something somewhere in the UK. There, there's probably several, but they're elusive. I yeah, I mean, because the the thing is, if you speak to anyone, and I, I haven't done yet, but if you speak to people who do like Viking reenactment and all of that kind of stuff, there are clearly places which will allow them to go and be a blacksmith on a field kind of thing. Yep. But they're all happy to camp in tents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that <laughs> so that's that's that element. But there's no reason why, um, you know, for certainly for a trial run, you couldn't do that and go, hey, look, do you know what? We can find a location that will allow us to do everything. The only thing it won't allow us, the only thing that isn't there, is something that is other than camp tent, you know, other than camping. Um, yeah. But there are ways around that as well, you know, which which are much more expensive. But there are ways around that. Where you know you you can you can hire slightly more upmarket accommodation for that kind of thing. But. I mean, it, it's crazy to think that. I mean, last last week being at um, Maker for Hanover, that is pretty much exactly it because it was a hotel just around the corner. Yeah, reasonably priced accommodation. Uh, the convention center had indoor stuff that very much like you'd get at Maker Central, and then outdoors at the back, all the, the, the kind of our friends. There's a forge and blacksmiths doing their thing for two days solid. Um, there's art installations that are breathing fire and things spinning around, and big mechanical bird thing that breathes like a four meter flame out the out the beak and stuff. And then a couple of guys doing pallet wood projects with hand tools and, you know, a lot of battery tools and stuff. It had all that kind of, all of those elements there. Just in bloody Germany. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, in my mind, it's an event that doesn't ever get to the point where you've got sponsors there. Hmm. It, because which which is tricky because um, make a camp in in uh, New York or wherever you want to call it um, they do have sponsors there 
and you know and they, they've got a couple of a uh, couple of brands together which, which is fine you know and I, I i understand why they do it but i think certainly in the uk because obviously there isn't the maker fair kind of thing in the uk now unfortunately um or if it is it's much more focused towards the 3d printing kind of realm and it's a lot smaller um Maker Fair, I, I don't know if there are any currently any mini Maker Fairs, but the Maker Fair UK, which was in Newcastle, mm. finished four years ago. Well, yeah, but I think so that's gone. I think certainly the element that people take away from Maker Central the most is the socialising. That's what people yeah. go to Maker Central for. And so I think from from my point of view, if you're making a a Maker Camp. Yes, you want there to be the element of the the kind of the sharing of the knowledge and the skills. And hey, you know what? You've never done blacksmithing before, and you, you're 52, but you've you've been a carpenter your whole life, and you've played around a bit with 3D printing. Come over here. So and so will give you a go, and you'll make a nail, and you maybe even get as far as making a blacksmith knife over two days, or whatever the case may be. That that little bit there, where it's kind of for the makers and not for the fans of the makers. Yeah. So it's you know it's not about youtube figures it's not about instagram it's you know if people want to have conversations about it while they're there that's fine but this is a the the makers gathering together i mean you know you get hammerings in america and you possibly have similar things in the uk i'm not not really sure i mean um the wood turning community has got a couple of events but they're very almost corporate you know they're organized by the um Woodturning Association of Great Britain and, and people like that or or um, Chestnut Finishes do their own kind of weekend based thing, which are great events, but they are you go and watch a load of people demo woodturning, there's stuff for sale and all of that kind of thing, which there's nothing wrong with and it is is you know a good event to attend, but it isn't that kind of hey, let's just come and hang out. Let's just let's just in my mind, what I'd love to call for a weekend, a turn up, which would be a brilliant wood turning uh pun to play with <laughs> but the problem with that you can't do it quite the same way as blacksmithing because it's it's kind of you're, you're restricted on we have to have a certain amount of lades if you want amount of people to play with stuff etc etc mm. so it's, it's a bit more complicated to organize um but whereas the, the kind of thing we're talking about is a social gathering that happens to have people there with machinery and tools and fire basically um and you know, if if part of that weekend happens to end up with a pizza oven being constructed and then someone, um, you know, um, machining out a, uh, a paddle for uh, putting the dough in and everything else, that's great. You know, that that's cool. It's a bit of fun. You can have a play around with the functionality of it. Uh, the pizza master can tell you whether or not it's good or bad. Does it need to be thinner? Does it need to be wider? Does it, you know, and you, you can play around with concepts um and i just think that's the sort of thing that at the moment and so I'm, i i might be wrong there might be something like this that is already in the uk somewhere and i'm just not aware of it but for me that's the sort of thing that isn't here in the maker community in the uk is is that kind of the, the event for the actual makers themselves who may not necessarily know each other and may watch each other on youtube but they're not paying for a ticket to go somewhere to go and look around and see if they can meet colin furs and you know all yeah. of the big names as well as some of the smaller names who were, you know, just as influential. What's that fellow wonky workshop? Isn't I wouldn't speak to him. He hasn't done any content for years. 
I mean, I'm sold on your concept. Definitely, I'll uh, yeah. I'll definitely attend when you um when you get it. Well, off that's, and, and uh, Jamie, and that's exactly yeah. the response that keeps happening. <laughs> it's uh, it's certainly something I'd like to see happen. Yeah, I think I think all of us would like to see it happen. Yeah. It's it's just the it's um, it's making it happen. How to make it happen? Getting the right people to yeah. find the right place. That allows yeah. the right things. That and every, success. But also, but those that group of people having the same vision. Yeah. Because and, and it, ha, having yeah. the right scale as well. I mean, there are certainly there are small places. If you, yeah. I mean, I I know I have a lovely place in South Wales, that's up on the yeah. side of a mountain. It's got. How far do you have to climb nice before you get there, Andy? It's a, it's a pretty <laughs> hefty. It's a pretty. The drive is a pretty hefty drive. Okay. As in the the drive in terms of the entrance from the gate to the building. The okay. drive is probably a quarter of a mile on a, a fairly steep slope. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad um, I don't have to carry anvils with me then. Yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah, you wouldn't want to have to walk up there with an anvil. It is walking <laughs> distance to a pub. Um, the climb back up the hill is is a little bit tricky if you've had a a, I think a few fights. Crawl is probably. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, Andy, in my mind, year year one as a tester, and this is actually based on something that uh, one of your other guests mentioned. I can't remember her name, but she's got the um, she's the American. And apologies, I'm using she as a pronoun, which isn't necessarily something she prefers. Uh, with red hair, Ali. Yes, Ali. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and because the similar conversation was had. Um, when they were on and um, they suggested look test a year no more than 50 people yeah you know 30 but, to 50 and this, people and this is it the place i'm thinking of size it's it's got a limit of 35 people i think it yeah. might be 30 people and basically the accommodation there's three bunk rooms yeah but and that's immediately in my mind that's too limiting because yeah. you want and, to and be this is it. Year, this yeah is yeah it. yeah and that exactly but it's as you got, said. yeah, it's on the side of a mountain, so actually, kind yeah. of here, getting a getting a, cold, a forge outside, not a problem because there's nothing to catch fire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like it's already breaking several of the uh, sort of core tenets of this this project. You know, it's yeah. it's already yeah. going against Dan's baby it's, here. So it, what it sounds yeah. like, what it sounds like, is we need to go back to the earlier idea, which seems a lot more feasible, of maker-themed food trucks, where all of the creation has been done beforehand. <laughs> so what? And, and, uh, and, what the, and the logistics of getting the food truck to the venue is up to the individual. <laughs> we do make a make a food trucks, and yeah. it, it it's just pitched up in the car park. Gloucester services. <laughs> so let's choose a nice busy services to start with. Yeah, hide hide in plain sight. Yeah, that's that's, that's key. I think. See, you've already in my mind. I've just got Steve thinking. I want to make my food truck look like a mini Gloucester services. <laughs> just like with that, just like that grass covered kind of berm over the top of it, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah, I mean, things it, like realistically lamb, um, lamb bread. yeah yeah absolutely but i i think realistically i it, you know from from the point of view of the actual creation and, and the the work to go into each unit if you like 
that would be much more much easier to be the admin and creating the event but you're less likely to get the people actually showing up mm. in the sense of you'll get people mm. coming up to see what other people have made and you might get three to five if you're lucky 10 people really putting the effort in of creating the food trucks but yeah, then you've... what you're basically asking them to do is create a business alongside their job yes <laughs> It's a big ask for most makers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that's why I'm saying it's you know I, I like the idea. I think I think it's great, I'm, and I'm saying that with all humility, having come up with it earlier. Um, or, I've, got, or... I've got my sorted already. I'm just getting a barbecue yeah. with a with a a, 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 a bake stone on the back of a bike. Perfect <laughs> for Welsh cakes. And what's the name? Oh, I've not got that far yet. Ah, oh, that's the first thing, the name and the logo. No, 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 no. How long have you been a maker? Wash kick on Con wheels. There you go. Concept, committee, name, logo, <laughs> then feasibility. Then discussion about pay, things break down. <laughs> Either well, way, it, it sounds like it's a massive amount of attention. Yeah. But this is that's the funny a, that's a Steve level segue there. <laughs> that's uh, that that's the funny thing though, Jamie, is that um, I love coming up with these kind of ideas. I love I love throwing these ideas around with other people, and I would be more than happy to join a committee, form a committee, or whatever on this kind of thing. But I'm I am also I've been on enough committees and helped. Um, organize enough exhibitions and big events like this that I have a long list at the back of my head of right these are all the things that could go wrong mm -hmm. so now how do we stop those things from going wrong it's risk mitigation isn't it it's risk mitigation but I will go over the top on that and I know that winds some people up I've been on committees with people who, who've got really frustrated with me and they say oh you just keep putting barriers in the way and you, you keep restricting this that and everything else and I'm like no I'm not I'm not trying to stop you from letting off fireworks in the faces of small children I think that's a marvelous idea <laughs> um I'm just suggesting that maybe a polycarbonate shield between you and the, the paying public might be an idea before you do what it is you're about to do you know, and oh, but that costs a lot of money. So do eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so the court th there was one of the one of the things that make fair was this performance art type piece that was, uh, I think, human sized hamster wheels. I saw that. Raz showed that on his uh, on his thing with the, the one person inside it with the with the two wheels and the flames. Exactly. And, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's like. Two, uh, two human-sized hamster wheels that, as you walk around them, they rotate together as well. So you could have two people in at any one time. And the, the main performers, who the guys who built it, have these massive jets of fire that come off it. Um, and apparently when it arrived at the convention center, they were like, uh, the health and safety people were like, um, what, what's this? <laughs> oh yeah, we we, um, we, we put it's the kids an art in it. piece. We, 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 what we do is we put the kids in, they run around, and then we shoot the fire off and stuff like that. And like, um, excuse me, what? I, where did you buy this from? So, oh no, no, we we built it. And you want to put the general public in there? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what we normally do. Right. Let me get the fire marshal first. <laughs> and uh, apparently they, they out and safety checked it all over, and the fire marshals then checked it all over and said, yeah, it's you know we're we're happy with the the risk mitigation. We're happy with the safety features you put in. We're happy with all of this. But can we maybe not put the fire on when the kids are in? We're, we're okay with it if you get people stepping back and you're in it with the fire yeah. on. But that, that's the one stipulation is is don't put kids in it and then put the fire on. So for this big, ridiculous, homebrew piece of absolute artistic lunacy, that was the, the only stipulation was... And that's and that's the German health and safety and fire marshal guys as well. So you know, it's, yeah. uh, their standards are like to be much higher than that of the British <laughs> ones. But yeah, I mean, you wouldn't. You, I mean, in the UK they just wouldn't even bother investigating it. They'd just say no. Yeah, basically. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We haven't got the person to look at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've got a permit. Yeah, we- we haven't got a procedure for that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dan, what's been what's been grabbing your attention lately? You got any particular things? This is this is the point in the show where we kind of talk about things that have been uh, grabbing our attention, whether it's something we've read, something we've watched, something we're about to do, something we've just done. Doesn't matter whether it, what format it is, whether it's a multimedia, whether it's social media, whether it's something physical. I, um... I do quite a lot of reading, um, mostly novels. Not I'm not a technically minded person. Um, and in, earlier in my life, I was I was quite big into sort of physical fitness and lifting weights and things like that. And uh, let that slide at least a year before COVID. So I can't blame COVID for that. But I've been recently looking at getting back into that. Um, and as is the case with everything that we do as well it's motivation it's how how do you mm-hmm. you know i've got stuff at home i do not have the excuse of i can't afford a gym membership this is literally a case of walking from the kitchen into the conservatory and taking the washing off the weight rack um <laughs> which can be just enough of a pain that you go oh i can't be bothered because i've got to yeah. move to towels you know yeah um and so it, it's taken me a little while to get there but i can strongly recommend a book by a gentleman called david goggins i know the guy yeah yeah and the book's called i'm pretty sure the book's called you can't hurt me or something like that um and for those people who they will possibly recognize him when they see him david goggins is a he's a former navy seal he he is the only ranger well, he's, yeah, he's this also... is the thing. He's a former Navy SEAL. He also qualified in the Army Ranger training whilst being a Navy SEAL and tried out for Delta Force. Um, and only he, he failed by a very thin margin. Um, and before he was a Navy SEAL, he was also um, Air Force Rescue something or other else. So he's been in all, basically, he's, he's been qualified in all three uh, major uh, U.S. armed forces, um, but since then he's he's broken all sorts of world records. At one point in time, he held the record for the most amount of pull-ups in a 24-hour period, and, and all this kind of stuff. And the book tells his story and everything else, but it also gives you um, 
tools and sort of things to help you drive yourself forward and kind of get out of of the situation and and it's it's quite um it can be powerful if you read it the right way or it can just be a, helpful um but i was particularly drawn to a quote from the beginning of it and i can't remember who originally gave the quote other than it was a greek general back in ancient greece um and he talks about the concept of the army and if you've got a hundred men in a regiment 80 of those men will be cannon fodder they could have trained the same as everyone else in the regiment, but they're, they're there to make up the numbers that you know they're going to die. And if they're lucky, they'll take another guy with them kind of thing. Uh, so 80 of the men are cannon fodder. Um, 15 to 20 of the men, roughly, if you're lucky, will be soldiers. And they'll, they'll know the job. They won't break under pressure. They'll be able to work well and they'll fight hard. But if you're really, really lucky out of 100 men, one of your men will be a warrior and that man will be able to lead all the others into battle they'll be able to inspire they'll be able to motivate and they'll they'll fight harder than anyone else and they'll be better than anyone else and it's just their their natural kind of inclination and instinct now i'm not suggesting for one minute <laughs> that any any of us you know that you could apply the same exact concept but i like to look back on times in school where you're the average guy or girl or person and you or you were the person in the corner everyone thought was weird and you've got to remember that out of a class of 30 40 50 people or 100 people in your year group or however many that there were of you there was only ever one of you and you're the only one who's then gone on to become an amazing ceramicist or a blacksmith or a, a puppeteer or a woodworker or whatever the hell it is you do out of that hundred people, you are the only you. And so for me, that quote and that particular book has resonated with me quite a lot. And I'll end up probably getting it printed off or something and stuck above my computer monitor to remind me to actually update my website if I ever want to sell anything. Um, and all of those other stupid tasks that you feel like oh yeah but that's not really what i want to do and, you, and you're putting boundaries in your way so that that's something that that has been dwelling on my mind for quite some time and, and although it's aimed at very much the sort of the physical improvement thing it's just as applicable to um to sort of the maker sphere and particularly if you're trying to make your making a business or getting motivated at something um so that that's one thing that's grabbed my attention and the other one is we were talking about comedy earlier and i've, I've mentioned it before on um other podcasts i'll mention it here again and it's quite an old series now but andrew schultz's series inside jokes on youtube um so that's schultz s-c-h-u-l-z um and it's it's not for people who get easily offended because it is comedians together behind the scenes and they're trying to work out why jokes that they've told on stage haven't worked or have offended people. And they, and they are, they are breaking down, you know, what's the premise? What's the funny? Can you make it sillier? Can you, and it's an interesting insight into the way in which jokes are constructed and the way in which that, you know, the, the human psychology behind, what makes something offensive What versus what makes a, a tricky subject funny, mm. but can be dancing around the edges a little bit. Um, mm. 
so those those are the two that I would recommend, and the, the final one would be a lemon meringue cruffin that everyone should try. I must admit I, the, the that the talk of that lemon meringue cruffin is making me want to go to. <laughs> it's making me want to go to Butterwick tomorrow because they they announced today that they've got a, a key lime pie um, cupcake. Okay. It's it's got that similar sort Will of. Will they be open tomorrow? They are, but I <gasps> think I mm. think bank holiday hours maybe. Yeah, might have to go take a wander in, or maybe only early. So some places are opening early, closing mm. could be. But yeah, well, I don't not know anywhere until late. here that does cruffins. Wow. So I would ship one to you, but the meringue would be melted before it got halfway. It's just an excuse for me to come and visit, mate. I was just going to say, so you'll have to come and visit instead, yeah. Jeremy. <laughs> so what's been grabbing your attention, Jamie? I've been, uh, well, a similar journey that Dan's getting back into, of um, a bit of a refining some fitness. Um, so yeah, we sort of alluded to before, but... Uh, on a bit of a, a bit of a, a, a journey of trying to get a bit of fitness back, and in the process, lost a bit of weight with it as well. But I managed to get a, uh, I've been, I've had my eye on a on a heavy bag, um, not punching bag, but you know, just the the, the weight bag shape to pick up. Yeah, yeah, and uh, absolute find of the day was um, the ten kilo one in Aldi for half price. So that's been my my afternoon's been a bit of me and my daughter just throwing this bag around, which has been nice, fantastic. But um, other than that, what I've been doing is trying to actually make a bit of a dent in all of the IT crap that I've been putting off uh, <laughs> myself for far too long. So I've I've basically spent the last two days um, sorting through old hard drives, uh, and th th there is a stack of. 10 drives here which have been uh sanitized and uh checked for health uh so there is let's see, four, eight, 12 terabytes worth of blank drives here and then there are another 10 so there's, drives there's, there's a maths problem for someone 10 10 drives making 12 terabytes what size are the drives yeah yeah <laughs> And then there are another 10 drives this side of me that are uh, too small to be sensibly useful, all below 500 gigabyte drives, um, which are all going to be dismantled and disposed of. So, yeah, lo lots of um, long-forgotten IT crap that I've been putting off. Housekeeping, should we say. Take, take the magnets out, turn them into fridge magnets. Never That's get them the on the fridge again, but... I, I might just pull all the platters out and um, send them to random makers and say, do something with that. <laughs> Big shiny disc. How about you, Andy? It's been grabbing yours. Uh, oh, this week, I sort of look. Uh, actually, I started Pilates a couple of weeks ago, so did some Pilates this week. Uh, had a haircut. Uh, some family stuff going on. Uh, been busy today. Did the resealed the shower and swept the chimney. Uh, so kind of yeah, been, been a little bit busy. Um, 
But in terms of kind of sort of media or anything like that, I came across this last week on Instagram, a, a book artist, a paper artist uh, called Ido Agassi, who I think is Israeli, but living in America. Sorry. Some of his posts are uh, written in Hebrew, and uh, but there's, there's references to things happening in America. So it could be that he's yeah, working in Israel and sends his stuff to America. I'm not entirely sure. Um, and he's just it's just making uh, just making amazing books and boxes for books as well. So yeah, he'll make a book, but then he'll make a presentation case for it. And it's just the, the level of precision and detail and some really interesting kind of book structures. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, yeah, it's really caught my eye. So I'm kind of, I've, I ordered a couple of days ago, I ordered a uh, paper cutter. So hopefully it will help me get back in the book binding. It'll save me having to bend over and use an exacto knife repeatedly to get through book board. So I've got a cutter coming that will cope with two mil, two, maybe even two and a half mil thick board. Um, so that's hopefully going to make my life a little bit easier for the cutting and hopefully get back into that. Right. And uh, I think the last one, just kind of yeah, the uh, Fulter Tools Treasure Trade Committee have kind of yeah, started kind of stirring again and <laughs> put, out, put out a bit of a poll to those in the Fulter Tools uh, group on Facebook as to kind of how yeah, it might apologies, go I, I sort of yeah. threw a few spanners towards that. <laughs> well, it's got, yeah, it's kind of things like, yeah, this is a, it's a, I think everyone that takes part in the Fools to a Treasure Trade enjoys it, but, and it's nice to kind of feed up to Christmas, uh, holidays, if you're not celebrating Christmas per se, um, yeah, traditional kind of time of gift giving, but it's also for a lot of makers, a time of being really busy, making things for, you know, Christmas markets and, and the like. So it's kind of, yeah, there are people who've kind of struggled because they, they have heavy commitments this time of year. There's a bit of a poll find out, you know, whether people would prefer to keep it at this time to fit in with the kind of tradition, or maybe shift it to spring summer where pressures are less. Um, so it's a little bit, I mean, yeah, yeah. There's good reasons for both. I think, yeah. um, I think I was part of one of the conversations at one point, and I think the the natural date other than Christmas would be April the first. Um, <laughs> For for it, which was suggested, I I think originally suggested by John D. Harvey, but I might be wrong. Um, but I I mean I I'm in that camp, unfortunately. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's an amazing thing, and I've been able to be part of it. I wasn't last year because I started doing Christmas markets, um, and I'm already making stock and have been since the end of August for Christmas market this year. Yeah. Um, so trying to fit in something that I could devote enough time for to make it fun and specific to a person um i wouldn't be able to necessarily do something this year particularly not as we're disappearing to america for 10 days in october um nice. but um yeah i i i think it's an amazing thing and uh it's it's some i'm i'm still pleased to see it continue each year i, I think like many things it's it's always um, going to be a case of it yeah not, not everyone please all the people all the time no yeah. absolutely that, yeah. that's that's the long and short of it and i think ultimately uh either somebody in uh, yeah somebody or a group of people will need to make a decision and just action from that yeah. um 
but we're not we're not going to satisfy everyone we know that uh, and that's the yeah. unfortunate sort of side of it um but yeah we, we we will have to give it some thought and then t toss a coin as long as it's not the witch that's fine <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's it. Well, Jan, where can people stalk you? Oh, people can stalk me in quite a few places. I have some of them just turn up randomly to my workplace sometimes, <laughs> uh, which is absolutely fine. But if you ever do come to Yandles and specifically want to come and see me, you've got to bear in mind, first of all, I work Tuesday to Saturday. So if you come on a Monday or a Sunday, I'm not there. Um <laughs> probably best to avoid a Tuesday because I might be teaching on that day. Um, uh, but other than that, if you do come and see me, please tell me who you are using your Instagram name because <laughs> I'm less likely to know who you are from your face um, or from your real name. And even if you tell me your Instagram name, you might have to remind me as well if we've ever spoken to one another. Um, <laughs> Because so just I'm, hold up the phone with the message conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and your and your logo and all of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But other than that, Wonky Workshop is what I am on Instagram and YouTube. I do also have uh, my sideline, which is Bevelwood UK, annoyingly, um, on Instagram. And uh, well, Bevelwood UK is the website. I think I managed to get away with Bevelwood on Instagram. Uh, the company name I actually wanted to call it was Bevel, which I looked and found and couldn't find anything. And when I actually tried to set that up, it discovered that an American company who supplies gents hairdressing equipment is called Bevel, mm. um, which is really frustrating. <laughs> I was like, well, it could have at least been yeah. woodwork or something like that, but it's not. So, um, yeah, so that's that's me there, basically. So you can find me at Yandles or you can find me uh, at Wonky Workshop on a lot of places or at Bevel or Bevelwood and uh, they're all me and uh, welcome to drop me a line and have a chat. Cool. And where can we find Ollie? Nowhere. He's mine. <laughs> I'm, I may, may take him to the odd event or two. He hasn't got his own page. I haven't got time to manage that as well. I've still got to practice. Aww. I've still got to practice with him a bit more. <laughs> It's been an yeah. absolute pleasure and a delight to yes. be out with you this evening, as yes. always. So it's good to chat, guys. Um, it is. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad we, we had a few good conversations and uh, yeah. I hope people uh, managed to get to the end of it. <laughs> and if you have got this far, you're welcome to send me a DM that says Bazinga. <laughs> <laughs> That's the special code word, just to let me know that you listened to nearly four hours of me on hobby horses with my friends. <laughs> I feel that note. We'll say goodbye. And we'll see you next week, Bye. folks. Absolutely. <laughs> goodbye, folks. <laughs>